Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? You know, today I realized the woman I've become. Uh, hey! <laughs> not in a good way. Uh, <laughs> oh, shoot. You know, I, I, I played what I like to call a risky game. It's not risky at all. It's a game, maybe, where I was like, you know what? We uh we did our, one of our Patreon brunches yesterday and uh yeah my lovely husband brought me a slurpee and put some cherry whiskey in it which is uh, the original dirty slurpee and I love it so of much of course and I didn't get enough so I decided I was going to do that today <laughs> so I'm like I yeah. will run uh to the store before I go but then I was like <sighs> Do I change out of these pajama pants before I go in public? I've gone through drive-thrus in pajama pants. Sure. I've gone out in pants that you're like, I don't know necessarily they're pajamas from afar because they're not noticeable. It's maybe just a solid dark color or something. But then when you have pajama pants that like they're covered in uh, planets or like cute animals or something it's very obvious you're wearing pajama pants so then I had to make that choice of like am I going to change into other pants and then come home and then change back into pajama pants to record and the answer apparently is no I'm not so (laughs) I made the choice my husband has been saying for years nobody cares and I I'm like yeah you're right probably but I've realized, I want to say I was about 50% there on just wear pajamas. If you're going to run to a store really quick, it's fine. I would say 
about five years into my marriage. Because the first couple of years, you're still trying, right, folks? Uh, but oh, then, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, by year five, you're just like, ah, it is what it is. But then I think the pandemic pushed me the other 50% <laughs> where I was like right. braless and pajamas for a year and a half. And then it was like, ah, shit, I have to go outside again. And I thought I could get away without wearing a bra in public. And I can't. <laughs> I can't. I would like to someday. It's 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 a dream I have. Sometimes I wear a hoodie that's a little baggy and I'm like, can you tell? You can. But I'm just, whatever I can do to be comfortable because I'm that age where now comfort has taken over and visual is just a far back seat. Not even the seat behind me, the seat. I'm, I'm driving a school bus and the front is comfort and way at the back riding the bumper is what I look like hmm. in how much I care mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's where I'm at. Welcome to 40. <laughs> You're not there yet, baby. You're not there yet. No. You're close. So close. So close. You know, it's interesting you say that because fun fact about old Ash here, I don't love going braless, which I know is crazy because I feel like most of the uh, breasted community does appreciate feeling free for me for some reason I like to feel like I'm held in I feel self-conscious if I don't have one on I'm like can people like see the shape through you know what I mean like I get uncomfortable yeah I am too self-conscious to go in public yeah without yeah, one same. but but if I like undo out the hole of the yeah. shirt throw it across the room when I'm not out yeah See, I still yeah. at home, like, I don't mind having, I prefer to have one on. I know it's it's very bizarre, but but this is all to say that if you're talking about uh, down low, underwear, don't care for them. <laughs> well, well, guess what, lady? We are opposites. We usually are. We usually, we're so alike, but we usually yin and yang on these things. Oh my God, if we were closer in size and we were ever in a situation, we could be like, we love these pajamas. I take the top, you take the bottom. I like you know, that. Like we could, I like it. We could be this because that's where we're at. Not that I would go topless, but that's that's not what I'm saying. I, uh, not that the people want to keep hearing about my boobs. Uh, or maybe some <laughs> do. I don't know. I'm certain that most do. I, I just, I will say this. I'm, I, I got used to throughout the pandemic being like, you know what? I'm just not going to wear one because I'm not going anywhere. And then the first like big trip I did was to see you. But in someone else's home, put on a bra. So I did. And I wore one like I, I, like I tried to like the second I woke up to like roll out of bed into a bra so that I was always... I don't know, cut. Well, I feel like I want to alleviate you of that burden. I don't feel like you need to feel that way in my home. And no. I don't want you to feel that way in my home. Look, it just means that when I got to the uh, Vancouver quarantine hotel, I got I got messy up top. <laughs> you became a Pollock painting. I got it. I basically walked into that room, closed the door, did the little locky thing, and then just like... Like a can of Pillsbury just cracked it open and then just, it came, it came your out. Your biscuits and your crescent rolls. I got it. Yeah. 
I have I have uh, dozens of. Listen, we all do. Uh, we all do. But yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Look, I I respect <laughs> it. I fully respect it. Fully respect it. I I like that we're still learning. Yeah, we're still learning about each other. We're learning things. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But I mean, you should also know that, like, you know, when I have a gal's party at this house, like, clothing is always optional. Yeah. Like, you do not have to feel, but, but, like, in the pool, like, it's like anything goes. <laughs> and I've talked about this. Oh, no. Nobody needs Let, to. I, I could never. Oh, I could well, never. yeah. Listen, I mean, it's whatever people are comfortable with. There's no pressure to be nude. Yeah. But I, sure. a couple of years ago, and I, I think I may have talked about this. I've definitely have talked about this when I'm guesting on some other people's podcasts. And literally, I finished talking and then was met with just shocked faces like truly <laughs> truly like horrified yeah and, and for that you know well, they get what they get but anyway no I had this like moment of someone I know someone that I'm very close to was diagnosed with breast cancer and it made me go the other way where I was like you know what we go, we only have so much time in these meat suits and we have you know we have to find some love for them and it, if anything, talking about, you know, I know you and I have a shared love of smashing patriarchy or attempting to. And uh, I was like, the, the hatred that we feel for our bodies is, is you know, that's... Uh, it's their fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I did have one summer in this house pre-pandemic where we, there, was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, lot of female energy and just really trying to... And it, you know what? It was only, it's only weird for the first few minutes. And then you start to feel like, or I'll speak for myself, you start to feel like, like one with the water, you know? That's like, that's how we were intended to be, you know? Sure. Yeah. First of all, don't think I didn't notice that little supernatural reference with meat suits. Thank you. Second of all, yeah, I don't know if I could ever get there. Maybe, who knows, if I'm liquored enough, you never know. And, and who knows... I mean, I just, oh, Lord. I mean, and this is coming from a woman. The hard majority of the percentage of medical staff in this town have seen everything I have to offer as I've given birth. And I swear that, like, sometimes, just like even, like, janitorial staff will come in just to double check. Like, I swear it's everybody in that hospital has seen your business by the time you're going. And so I just, but yet... I'm just, I'm barely a name on a chart. So I'm like, I'm, I think they're focusing. They're looking me, they're looking me in the, in the who. They're not looking me in the eye. So I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine being looked in the eye with a who out. I don't know why I keep calling it a who. I'm a grown I, woman. <laughs> Cindy Lou who. Uh, no. <laughs> Listen, there's also no pressure. Everyone yeah. is on their own journey, and I'm not suggesting that my journey yeah. is any better or worse than anyone else's. It's not. It's a, again, everyone is on their own journey. For me, I found it freeing. That's all because yeah. I, I felt I have always felt so yeah. self conscious that then when I was just like, "Look, I'm gonna go for this. Let's do it," you know? Yeah, it was nice. Well, look, I'm not. I'm not saying someday I'm not going to just walk somewhere topless. I might. 
Who knows? And I'm also not saying I want to like go to a nude beach. I don't. I don't want to go to like the no. the nude pool at, at the Mirage in Vegas. Like that's not my speed. Oh, that that's sounds. That's not my speed. I'm nope. saying with a small group of trusted women that that I yeah. know. That's about. That's that's as uh, that's as extreme as I get. I feel like maybe for me it's I I have always I don't I I don't think I've had a group of women that I've been like okay we're comfortable enough let's just be free do whatever you you know live your life and be fine with it I don't think I've ever had that I've had like friend female friends over the years but well this this is it's actually funny you say that because uh leslie styler friend of the podcast she and i uh and back in toronto back in the day we used to do sketch comedy together as a duo called Corey, and uh we did a sketch once based on this and the uh, the, what the basic premise was is that based in our real lives together at at that time we had been friends for you know 15 years or something and we were remarking one day that it's like isn't it interesting that I know everything about you and I've known you for 15 years but I've never seen you nude like isn't it interesting again this is pre all of my own nude awakening right yeah (laughs) but this is what's great so we write this scene and, and and the whole premise is is that it's like well listen you know what? Maybe today's the day. Why don't we take a bath together? We can do this. Let's do it. And so the way we would do it on stage is we would really get we would really get naked, but in the course of the mm-hmm. the characters versions of us, we would keep yeah. a towel on. That was the whole thing, the whole conceit because the, the as the scene goes, it's like we're trying to be comfortable, we're fighting it whatever. Anyway, uh long story short, and then the joke is is that I go to move uh, and like get out of the tub in the scene and then the towel falls and I'm, I'm completely naked. So I was completely naked on stage. Now the audience, of course, was only seeing my back and my beautiful ass. And But then my front was going to be towards Siler. So in rehearsals, we started talking about, because this was based in this real life conversation that we'd never seen each other naked before, I was like, I think we have to rehearse it. I was like, I think, I think I have to just stand here openly. You know what I mean? I was like, I think I just have to, I think I have to just show yeah. you and you just have to yeah. look at me and then we'll be prepared. Because I was like, we can't have the first time you're doing it be on stage and then what if we laugh and the scene's not going to work, whatever. So in my apartment in the middle of the day in Toronto, I get buck naked and then it was just true like laughing to crying to like not being able to breathe because it was like, what are we doing? Like this is insanity. <laughs> so anyway, so that I would just stand there and she she drank it in. Long story short, too late. We get to the show. We do the show. We do the scene. It's of course, it's the closer for our whole show. I mean, you can't go come back from nudity. And no, you can't. Um, you can't. It kills. The audience loves it. Uh, But then when we get off stage, she is convulsing laughing. And I'm like, what's so funny? And she's like, the the stage lights. She's like, you were backlit. I couldn't see anything. (laughs) You were completely in shadow. So we had spent an hour with me naked just standing in front of her, presenting my body for nothing. For nothing. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say for nothing. <laughs> excuse me. Excuse me. You're right. You're right. It was the beginning of my own nude awakening. So there you go. But yeah, what a laugh. Oh, God. That was so funny. Just again, the image of like two adult women. Like, just look at me. Get used to it, baby. Uh, I like 
the journey that this episode already has <laughs> well, gone Well, you know what? On. Partway through, I was like, I think this makes sense, though, because, of course, we're talking about Marilyn Monroe, who is, of course, a sexual icon for, yeah. to many. And yeah. so I think that this is actually kind of thematic. We didn't plan this, but I feel like it makes sense. <laughs> we didn't look. I did not plan on wearing pajama pants to the store, but I did. And look, when I say the store... I'll do, I'll, I'll wear pajama pants to get my mail. Sure. I'll wear pajama pants to 7-Eleven. But if I'm going to not knock it up to a grocery store, ooh, that's real pants. Oh, yeah. And by real pants, I mean like yoga pants. So barely a difference. The, the pattern is just more calming to strangers, I suppose. The point is, I did specifically put on a bra because I was leaving the house. But then, uh... Just didn't want to have to change the pants. I get it. And for me, I'll answer the door in a bathing suit. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, have you seen you? Oh, stop. I mean, come on. Bless it. Come on. Bless it out. Yeah. Listen, before we move on to anything, I need to know what you're drinking over there. You, you, you have a Slurpee. You, you're doing day two. I do. Is this what, day two of Dirty Slurpees? It is. Wow. And spoiler alert, tomorrow's day three. <laughs> I mean, I guess there could be unlimited days when you think about I it. I have not done one of these in years. Like, I'm talking like my husband and I, when we were first dating, like just babies, he would walk over to my house. 7-Eleven was kind of in between where we were living, where both of us were living. And he would put a little like Mickey, a cherry whiskey in his pocket, and he'd go to 7-Eleven and he'd buy us drinks and he would come to my house and we'd like glug glug put them in our drinks and we'd just sit outside and and just get nice you know just like it's it's great it's going down nice it's a hot summer night it's great i mean look there's a reason that i fell in love with him as quickly as i did that was the moment where i was like ah oh, that's my person this makes sense because he was living for it too and I have not thought about them in years and now that it's back I don't want to let it go well it's ironic no. because again we didn't pre-discuss yeah. this and I am drinking no. out of a true crime and cocktails dirty slurpy cup come on for those of you who maybe are newer to us these uh, there's only four of these cups in existence uh, Christy had yeah. one of them made for each of us and then we gave away two of them in a, our first giveaway we ever did so that so that's fun and I've got a yeah. I've got a diet coke and a little bit of Jack Daniels in there so I'm also reliving something I don't know what I'm trying to uh, but I like that you're you're doing something you haven't done in years and I may have done this on the podcast once but anyway toot toot gentleman Jack <laughs> I, I feel like we're both capturing like we're recapturing something something youthful yeah Marilyn's Marilyn's bringing and it and then out. the other thing I'm I'm chasing yeah. my drink with is just a piece of a Twizzler pull and peel now these are it. mostly wheat I uh discovered and oh. yeah yeah so I gotta I gotta oh. take my gluten pills if I'm gonna eat one of these yeah I was gonna say oof I just needed a little something a little something sweet you know I was working on something I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Uh, and then I came home and I ate very quickly. And then I was like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like, I just need a bite. I just need a bite, a couple of bites. I don't want to sit down and eat like a, you know, plate of cookies. But I have to have something sweet if I've eaten a really salty meal fast. Yeah, well, you need the balance. And look, 
between the two of us, again, if we're in a desert situation where (laughs) I love that in my brain, this is what the desert Mm -hmm. situation would be, but it's here is this massive trunk of food. You have to survive on this. Obviously, salty goes to you. I'll take the sweet. Mm-hmm. That's why this works. Yeah, this why that work. You you take the top. I take the bottom. <laughs> In this magical yep. bathing suit underwear situation yep. where it's magical and just fits us to each of our sizes. Of course. But don't think that I don't wait and long for the day that I do laundry so that I can put on those shorts that you gave me mm, while I was there. Yeah. They are right. so nice. I bought a pair of those and, so and they're so soft. I ordered five more pairs and it was when you were coming. So I ordered you some yeah. too because I was like, she's going to want these. It makes sense. Right? And that is a lesson that I have learned. If you find something that you like, you need to get a few yep. more of them immediately even though you're like i'm not gonna need it for years because let me tell you dear listeners when you go to find it it will not exist and i'm saying that as someone who's sleeping on almost threadbare sheets because i have a specific sheets set that i love and i have not found any that come close and you can't buy them anymore so i'm trying to find ones because i like a nice cool sheet Mm. Because I, I want I want a chilly room, I want a cool sheet, and I want to burrow like my cat. Yep. I just want to nestle in, and that's how I want it to be. And those sheets, it, it was a real heartbreaker. So now we're on the hunt for ones that are going to be as close as we can get. And once we find them, we're just going to go crazy and order a bunch more. Because that's the lesson. Get what you can, because they're going to stop making it. Yep. And if you hate something, it's going to be around forever. 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 That's kind of the sick joke of it. Yeah. Well, listen, for those who are watching, you might be wondering, because normally we're in matching shirts, and tonight I am in a pink shirt, and this is one of our new merch items. It says jazzed. <laughs> I was debating when I made it to put in more uh, Zs, Zs to the Americans. Sure. Jazzed. I was trying, but then I was like, should it be the Z or should it be the A? And then I was like, just make it jazzed. Just make it the. Word. I think. I think it looks great. Thank you so much. Uh, we had a lot of requests for specific pink merch, so I have done a whole yeah. series of pink merch items. Uh, we also got got requests for more crop tops, so I have six new crop tops. Did you know that six? So now we'll have a total of seven different crop tops to choose from. You can't be stopped. I won't. I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. You like so, creating. I do. I really yeah. do. And, you know, people asked for those things, so I delivered. What people yeah. did not ask for was merch with one of my dog's faces on it, and I made that anyway. So oh, it should I think also that's be what noted. Want. <laughs> Thank you very much. It should also be noted that there is a uh, picture, a series of pieces of merch with my dog Peach's face on them. It says, Bad Bitch. She's doing kind of like a Cardi B, like tongue out thing. Yeah. And for the month of July, 10% of all the profits we make on any of the Bad Bitch merch is going to go to Friends of Milo, which is the rescue, of course, uh, that brought Peaches into my life. So uh, check it out, truecrewmerch.com uh, for that and so much more. Uh, should we get into it? I feel like we should dive in. Yeah. If people think we've been on a journey already, buckle up because this is going to be... Three documentaries and four books is what you're about to get. Wow, four so, books. Jesus. So so brace yourselves because 
it, it seems cohesive at the beginning and then I think I go on a tangent and there are a lot of side notes that don't need to be there, but I like a side note now because Basement Christie has won. <laughs> yeah. Christie has learned, let Basement Christie do what she wants and she won't fuss. Yeah. So Basement Christie liked the uh, side notes, so I guess they're here to stay. Well, listen, I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, I love the side notes. Well, <laughs> brace yourself. You don't know what side notes are coming. All and right. right now, I don't think either do I. It's a journey well, for all of us. Yeah, we're all going to discover it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so like we said, this, of course, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about Marilyn Monroe. Now, this was one of our Patreon poll winners. Uh, every month on Patreon, we provide four names and those who have signed up to become patrons get to vote. And so then we will cover whatever person they choose, uh, whatever famous case they choose. So to learn more about that, go to patreon.com slash cocktails. We have a whole lot of fun over there. So Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe is most known for being the blonde bombshell during the golden age of Hollywood. She starred in Some Like It Hot and The Seven Year Itch and was part of more than 30 films before her life was tragically cut short at the age of 36. The coroner listed Marilyn's death as a probable suicide. But if it was a suicide, then why did her housekeeper wait hours after discovering the body before she called the police? And why did some of the autopsy samples get destroyed before they were even tested? Oh, God, I like you a lot, you know? <laughs> and I you. And I you. Oh. Now, you know, it's amazing because I don't feel like I know that much about... Marilyn Monroe in general, uh, but yeah. certainly about her death. So I'm very excited about this episode. Um, this was a real uh, learning experience. I mean, a lot of them, I don't think there's been a case so far where I'm like, I know everything. Obviously, I learn things every time. But this one, it was like, oh, obviously, I know who she is. Like, it's huge and it's not a surprise. And then you start reading things and it's just like, I, I had no idea. And so it's become a thing that I will say to my husband without me meaning for it to where I'll be I'll be doing something for a case and I'll I'll he'll just ask how it's going and I'll be like, you know what, if I had a time machine. So now it's become the joke of like, if I get a time machine and I'm only allowed one thing, what would I do? Wow. That was that was always the thing. And my answer was always <laughs> I wanted to go back and see things about Kurt Cobain was <laughs> I wanted to stop it uh was my thing my answer changed this time I was like you know what even if I just had one moment with a time machine all I would do with it right now I just want to go back and give Marilyn a hug and tell her she is loved oh wow because I don't know if she ever heard it well <laughs> this, you know this wow is a real, it's a real ride we're going on folks well, let me get, before we get in that time machine, let me get my blanket and put it in the dryer because I got to wrap that warm blanket around her, fresh out of the dryer. You want nothing but to hold her and just be like, you are loved. That's all I want to, like, it, everything I read, I'm like, ah, oh, nope. This is what I would use my time machine moment on. I think that's really beautiful. So she, uh, she deserved a lot more than she got. Mm. 
is what I'm telling you. And don't worry, we're going to like, mm, about the patriarchy at some point throughout oh, this. Oh, good. That's fun. <laughs> Always. You know, I can't stop. Yeah. It's just who I am now. So uh, even though most of us were not alive during Marilyn Monroe's lifetime, we all still are aware of this ultimate American icon. Marilyn was known for being larger than life, and while she may have become famous for playing the dumb blonde roles, in reality, she was intelligent and well-read. At the time of her death, one of Marilyn's most prized possessions was an autographed photo of Albert Einstein, which said, To Marilyn, with respect and love and thanks. The idea of those two ever hanging out is amazing to me, and I kind of hope somewhere in a weird cosmic way they are. But... Maybe they are. I'd like to think that. Marilyn has been described as, quote, irresistible to men and inspiring to women. Now, in order to best understand Marilyn, we unfortunately are going to have to go back 60 years before her death and start with her mother, Gladys. We're not going to like Gladys. Oh, boy. We're not going to like most of the people I mentioned. We'll like Marilyn. Oh. <laughs> most of the rest... Well, maybe a couple we might, but we'll see. So Gladys Pearl Monroe was born May 27th, 1902 in Mexico to Otis and Della Monroe. The family moved to Los Angeles County where Della gave birth to a son, Marion, in 1905. Things started to get a bit rough for the couple. Otis started to drink heavily and stay away from home for days at a time. During the summer of 1908, Otis became semi-paralyzed and was admitted to Southern California State Hospital, where it was discovered he was suffering from syphilis of the brain. Oh, dear. After three months, Della could no longer endure visits to her husband as he was mentally beyond recognition. Nine months later, Otis died at the age of 43. Mere months later, Della would be entertaining eligible bachelors and widows, widowers, as Gladys would say later, quote, Mama liked men. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't think I didn't think, God, would my kids ever say that? God, I hope not. Uh, Della would be engaged multiple times before marrying Lyle Arthur Graves in March 1912. However, within two years, the couple, couple would be divorced. Della and her children moved around for several years, and at the end of 1916, Della had fallen for an oil driller named Charles Granger. After a whirlwind romance, Della wanted to move in with Charles, uh, but he had reservations about taking on a woman with children. So Della did what any mother would do. She pushed her 14-year-old daughter Gladys into a relationship with a 26-year-old man oh. so that Della could move in with Charles. Oh. God. So 10 days before Gladys's 15th birthday, she married Jack Baker, and it was all perfectly legal because Della claimed that Gladys was 18 on the marriage license. Seven months later, Gladys and Jack welcomed a son named Robert, and in 1919, they had a daughter named Bernice. Unfortunately for Gladys, Jack was a drinker with a violent temper, and while visiting Jack's family in Kentucky, Gladys went on a hike with Jack's younger brother, and when she got back, Jack beat her with a horse bridle. Oh my god! Yeah. So maybe Gladys also has some trauma? Oh, Gladys has a lot of trauma. 
but we're still not going to like her. Got it. Yeah. When the family returned home to Los Angeles in June 1921, Gladys filed for divorce, citing extreme cruelty by abusing and calling her vile names, using profane language at and in her presence by striking and kicking. Jack claimed that his wife had been cheating on him for years, but the court still sided with Gladys and awarded her full custody of their children. However, Jack just ignored the court's ruling and took Robert and Bernice to live with him in Kentucky. Gladys followed to be near her children, but soon got bored and moved back to Los Angeles, where she found work at Columbia Pictures as a film negative cutter. Oh. In 1924, Gladys became smitten with Martin Edward Mortensen, a meter reader for the Southern California Gas Company. The couple married in October 1924, but Gladys soon found her new husband to be exceedingly dull. Gladys left Martin, but he tried repeatedly to win her back. Martin then filed for divorce, stating that Gladys had deserted him. Near the end of 1925, Gladys was separated from her husband, but she had no idea where he was. She then soon discovered she was pregnant by a man named Charles Stanley Gifford. On New Year's Eve, Gladys told Charles that she was pregnant, hoping that the spirit of the season might cause him to propose. It did not. Oh, oh dear. Charles was newly divorced, and he was kind of getting used to the idea of a little bit of freedom, so he offers her some money. Gladys refuses. Charles then offers her the, well, Gladys, you're very lucky to still be legally married to this other man, so you can at least give the baby his last name. Whoa. Yeah. So, Norma Jean Mortensen was born June 1st, 1926 in Los Angeles County Hospital. On the birth certificate, Gladys listed her first two children as dead. What? They weren't. They're gonna come back briefly later. Uh, Gladys listed the father as Charles Gifford, and for some reason, under the father's occupation, Gladys wrote Baker? Uh, and somehow things got mixed up and Norma Jean would be baptized as Norma Jean Baker. Huh. Short, shortly after giving birth, Gladys fell into a deep depression, barely caring for her daughter. At one point, Gladys became so confused that she attacked her best friend and co-worker, Grace McKee, with a knife. Later in life, Norma Jean would say that one of her earliest memories was of her mother trying to smother her in a crib with her pillow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gladys's mother, Della, who was still in her life, yet refused to actually help her, suggested that Gladys give the baby to a couple that lived across the street. So at just 12 days old, Norma Jean was sent to live with Wayne and Ida Bolander, who took in foster children to supplement their income. Mm-hmm. The state paid them $25 a month for each child. But since Norma Jean wasn't technically a foster child, the state wouldn't pay for her, so Gladys paid the fees out of her own pocket for the next seven years. Wow. When Norma Jean was one, Della mentally snapped and broke into the Bolander's home by elbowing the glass out of the front door looking for her granddaughter. The police were called and Della was taken to Norwalk State Hospital, where she was plagued by hallucinations and delirium. She died a month later. Wow. Cause of death was listed as inflammation of the heart muscle, better known as myocarditis, 
as well as manic depressive psychosis. Norma Jean stayed with the Bolanders, who were extremely religious, like footloose level, no dancing or singing kind of religious. Norma Jean wasn't even allowed to go to the movies. And while living with her foster family, Norma Jean would have visits with her mother Gladys. However, Norma Jean didn't realize that Gladys was her mother, partially because Norma Jean was terrified of her. In June 1933, Gladys arrived at the house to take Norma Jean with home with her, and the poor kid was found cowering in a closet. Gladys, who was considered to be fun-loving by her co-workers and friends, soon became sullen and depressed while caring for Norma Jean. So once again, the poor kid gets sent off to live with a foster family, oh. this time a British couple known as the Atkinsons. The Atkinsons were unlike anything Norma Jean had seen before. They drank, they smoked, they liked to laugh and have a good time. They gave Norma Jean a grass skirt and taught her how to hula dance, to juggle oranges, and to throw knives, which I have more questions about, but, you know, I guess yeah. it, was a, it was a different time. <laughs> uh, they were happy and carefree, which was a world she did not know right. before. So while Norma Jean's living her best life, her mother Gladys is completely falling apart. She learned that her son Robert had died at the age of 15 from a kidney infection, and Gladys's maternal grandfather, Tilford Marion Hogan, hung himself at the age of 82 after silently battling mental illness. So this all kind of leads to a breaking point for Gladys, and she started to have hallucinations. One morning, while at the Atkinsons for breakfast, Gladys threw herself down a staircase. Her doctor diagnosed her as a paranoid schizophrenic and said that her illnesses have been characterized by preoccupation with relation at times and at other times deep depression and agitation. It appears to be a chronic state. So soon after, Gladys gets committed to a state hospital. A year later, Gladys's friend Grace has the court declare Gladys as an insane incompetent so that Grace can act as the legal guardian for Norma Jean, making decisions on where Norma Jean should live. First, Grace had Norma Jean stay with Grace's sister and brother-in-law, Enid and Sam uh, Nepplecamp. Shortly after that, Norma Jean moved in with Harvey and Elsie Giffen, a well-off couple who legitimately loved the child, so much so that they asked to adopt her. However, they had plans to move to New Orleans, and neither Gladys nor Grace wanted Norma Jean living that far away, so they said no. After the Giffins moved, Grace tried to get another couple, the Carrolls, to adopt Norma Jean, but Gladys wouldn't allow it. Gladys still lived with the hope that she would get well enough she could leave the hospital and raise Norma Jean on her own. In the end, Norma Jean lived with ten different foster families and spent time living in an orphanage. And unfortunately, throughout this time, Norma Jean was also sexually abused, which is something that she mentioned in her autobiography. She's also credited as, credited as being one of the first major celebrities to speak publicly about sexual abuse. Really? Yeah. Wow, good for her. In the spring of 1935, Grace met a man named Erwin Doc Goddard, and the couple married in Las Vegas less than six months later. Now that she was a married woman, Grace decided to bring Norma Jean to live with her. Unfortunately, that only lasted a month as Doc would abuse Norma Jean, and instead of standing up for the child and 
dumping the full-on creep, Grace decided Norma Jean had to go. But no foster families were available in the area, so Norma Jean was sent to the Children's Aid Society Orphanage in September 1935. The matron of the orphanage wrote in Norma Jean's file, quote, If she is not treated with much reassurance and patience at times, she appears frightened. I recommend her to be put with a good family. So in February 1936, Grace petitioned the Los Angeles Superior Court to become Norma Jean's legal guardian. Her petition was granted a month later, which meant that she started getting government checks for Norma Jean's care, taking in $25 every month. However, Grace would leave Norma Jean to live at the orphanage for another 17 months. Stop. Oh, you're right. This poor woman. Yeah. Oh, this poor child. Oh, God. In June 1937, Grace and her bastard husband, Doc, took Norma Jean back into their home, (laughs) only later to be passed on to an Aunt Olive. Unfortunately, once again, Norma Jean was assaulted in her new home, this time by one of her cousins. Oh. Yeah. I want to say it gets better for her, but we all know it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, So Norma Jean is taken to live with Grace's aunt, Anna Lauer, who was a Christian scientist. Around this time, Norma Jean suffered abnormally painful periods and would later be diagnosed with endometriosis. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was going to get there. Maybe. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, However, living in a Christian scientist home, Norma Jean wasn't permitted to use any kind of medication, not even aspirin. Around this point in time, while a patient at Agnews State Hospital, Gladys wrote to Norma Jean to tell her her half-brother was dead. Oh, and yeah, by the way, you have a half-brother. And then it was like, oh, and by the way, you have a half-sister. She's alive. She's 19 or something. Like, it, I just can't imagine being like, so your half-brother has died. You have a brother. Like, <laughs> it's like, no. maybe, maybe change that around a bit yeah Uh, by the end of 1941 anna felt she could no longer take care of norma jean due to a heart condition so norma jean was sent off to live with grace once again grace's husband doc soon got a job offer in west virginia grace and doc decided he should take it even though norma jean was living with them grace felt it was too much of an expense to take norma jean with them but instead of finding her another foster home grace decided the best idea for norma jean was to get married. Oh, God. The problem is, Norma Jean was only 15 years old. Who on earth would marry her? Well, lucky for her, Grace's next-door neighbor, Ethel, had a handsome 20-year-old son named Jim Doherty. Jim was a former Van Nuys High School football captain and class president who was currently working at Lockheed Aircraft. Grace arranged for Jim to take Norma Jean to a Christmas Eve dance. Jim's mother, Ethel, suggested maybe Jim propose, to which he said, and I love this, quote, My God, she's just a baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was ready to I was ready to call out Jim. but No, no, I think I think Jim is OK. Ah, not supportive, but he's OK. OK. Uh, then Ethel uh, said if Jim didn't marry her, Norma Jean would go to an orphanage. So Jim took Norma Jean on a few more dates and decided he would, in fact, marry her. And in 1942, at the age of 16, Norma Jean got married. A year after their wedding, Jim enlisted in the Merchant Marines. He was sent to Catalina Island for training, where Norma Jean joined him. 
In the spring of 1944, Jim was sent to the Pacific, so 17-year-old Norma Jean went to live with her mother-in-law, Ethel, who got her a job folding and inspecting parachutes at an aircraft plant called Radio Plane. One day while working, an army photographer named David Conover came to do publicity photos of attractive young women in American factories to boost the soldiers' morale. When he came across Norma Jean, he asked if she would pose, and then he introduced her to a modeling agent, Emmeline Snively, who convinced Norma Jean to straighten and bleach her hair as she would get more jobs as a blonde. Norma Jean started appearing on magazine covers all over the world, while in Buenos Aires, with the Merchant Marines, her husband Jim pointed to a cover and said, Hey guys, that's my wife. The guys went, sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> so then, the problem with that was, it kind of got him a little rattled. It was under his skin. He didn't like that people were like, that woman's way too hot for you. Uh, so he told Norma Jean, when I get out of the surface and come home, this stops. We're going to have a family. In 1946, Norma Jean appeared in five magazines in one month, which led to an interview with 20th Century Fox. She was given a screen test immediately by sneaking her onto a set of a movie that was shooting and filming a quick scene while the movie was on a break. The film was developed and slipped into the daily rushes that the studio head was viewing, who immediately offered Norma Jean her first movie contract. The studio put it into the contract that they had the right to rename her as they just didn't care for the name Norma Jean. So they chose a name they liked, and Norma Jean requested to use her mother's maiden name, and Marilyn Monroe was born. While on the Yangtze River in China, Jim received a letter from an attorney stating that Norma Jean was divorcing him because she was ready to live as Marilyn Monroe. Yes! Gladys was let out of the state hospital and lived with an aunt in Oregon until Marilyn was able to afford to bring her mother to Los Angeles. Gladys showed Marilyn a photo of her father, but said he was killed in an auto accident in New York, which he was not. Oh. At the time, Marilyn was doing small extra work, such as passing by and saying hello in Scooter Who, Scooter Hey, which is the most interesting title of a movie I may have heard, yeah. uh, and as a waitress in Dangerous Years. But since they weren't using her very much, the studio dropped her. Taking her final check to get cashed, Marilyn got lost and came across a police officer for help. He escorted her to a store where the manager agreed to cash the check. Then she headed to a doctor's appointment where she said she had a cold and hadn't slept for a few days, so the doctor prescribed sleeping pills. Something that's going to come up later in our story. I bet it is. So not feeling well, Marilyn goes home and heads to bed early after taking her new prescription. Around midnight, she wakes up to a noise, and it turns out that someone was cutting the screen out of her bedroom window. Marilyn jumped out of bed and ran outside to see what was happening. There was a man climbing into her bedroom window. Marilyn runs down the street, calls a police from a neighbor's house. Two detectives arrive and check Marilyn's apartment. They find no one. They tell her, don't worry. Once a prowler gets scared off, they don't come back. Then someone knocked on the door. It was around 1 a.m., so Marilyn told the detectives she wasn't expecting anyone. When she opened the door, the prowler lunged forward and grabbed Marilyn. The two detectives stepped in. The dude, the prowler, had the 
audacity to claim he was a friend of Marilyn's. And the detective said, well, he knows your name and your address, so he must be your friend. Thankfully, they still decided to frisk him before they left, and they found a gun in his pocket. And when they looked a little closer, they realized it was a police gun. Oh, wow. The prowler turned out to be the police officer that helped Marilyn find somewhere to cash her check. So he would have got her name and her address off the check. Oh, oh my God. That's the first time I've choked on this show, I think. I'm so sorry. Wow. Yeah. This was book four. So this one really came through for me. But then... The detectives were like, ah, you know what? He's new to the force and he has a wife and a 14-month-old baby. And if you press charges, it would, quote, give the police force a black eye. So Marilyn didn't press charges. Give the police force a black eye. Yeah. That sounds like a fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) Power case. Yeah. Power case. Yeah. So... August 1947, Marilyn attracted the attention of established Hollywood couple John Carroll and Lucille Ryman Carroll, who was the head of talent at MGM. However, the head of MGM studio, Dor Shari, said that Marilyn was, quote, not photogenic and that she didn't have, quote, the sort of looks that make a movie star. Oh, that's rich. What a that blind is rich. sack of shit. Yeah. Uh, But he seemed to be the only one with that very wrong opinion. Studio executive Harry Cohn invited Marilyn to accompany him on a trip to Catalina on his yacht. She said, quote, of course, I'd love to take a trip with you on your yacht, Mr. Cohn. And I so look forward to meeting your lovely wife. He was so enraged and said he'd give her a last chance. She could sleep with him right then and there. She refused he was she was dismissed from his office. Marilyn said, quote, I was determined no one was going to use me or my body, even if it could help my career. I've never gone out with a man I didn't want to. In the male-dominated world of the 1940s and 50s, if a woman wanted opportunities in the film industry, giving sexual favors was something that seemed to be expected of her, which is barf. So sad. If I may. But when Marilyn was a star, she loathed powerful men who ran the studio system and did everything in her power to defy them. And they hated her because she knew exactly who and what they were. And then again, it just made me love her even more. So while working with a studio, Marilyn was assigned acting lessons with Natasha Lites, Columbia's head drama coach. Mothering figure side note. Natasha coached Marilyn through 20 movies, and after 1951, Marilyn refused to perform a scene unless Natasha was on set. Huh. Again, she didn't get a strong female loving figure. She was going to find one somewhere. She didn't get any strong parental figure, technically. No, No, she did not. Uh, Marilyn landed a small part in the Marx Brother comedy Love Happy, specifically a 38-second scene where she sashays into Groucho's office in a strapless evening gown, telling the investigators she needs help because some men are following me. And then he does the corny, like, oh, I can see why. And then, like, the glass is like, oh, fuck off, Groucho. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think... (laughs) 
I think someone's uh, a little spicier than you. Usual. <laughs> the quote, oh, fuck off, Groucho, is just amazing. <laughs> I have, I don't think I have anything against Groucho Marx. It was literally a line in a movie, but nope. Nope. Uh, but no big parts were coming her way, so Marilyn was in need of money, so she agreed to do nude modeling. She asked that the photographer's wife be present and that none of the helpers were on set. She also wanted it shot at night. So on May 27th, 1949, a few days before her 23rd birthday, Marilyn went through with the shoot. The session lasted two hours on a red velvet covered backdrop. Marilyn signed the release as Mona Monroe and was paid $50. The photos, which would come to be known as the red velvet photos, would go away quickly. For now. So put put a pin in that. Uh, around this time, Marilyn tried to contact her birth father, but he told her, quote, I'm married and I have a family. I don't have anything to say to you. Call my lawyer. Oh. Which is harsh at best. Uh, so during these years, Marilyn dated a few men, and to be honest, none of them deserved her. She dated a musician whom she would not name, but he apparently was married to a movie star in the 1950s and mm. was the single father to a son from a previous marriage. Marilyn and this mystery man seemed happy for a while, but when the subject of marriage came up, the man told Marilyn, Oh, I can't do that to my son. When Marilyn pressed him further, he said that if something were to happen to him, quote, it wouldn't be right for him to be brought up by a woman like you. (gasps) Oh, God. Get the blanket and the time machine. (laughs) We've got some work to do. Oh, I'm trying to think of how oh, I was going to try and come up with a name like the blanket time machine bandits or something. And where all we do is we go through time giving people hugs that need yep. them, you know? Yep, absolutely. So I'm going to get into it more later, but this woman was a goddamn treasure. Yeah. And I truly don't believe that any man deserved her. And speaking of which... Enter baseball legend, New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio. Now a disclaimer for any of our listeners who were like me and knew only the beautiful love story between Marilyn and Joe. I am referring to the fact that after Marilyn's death, Joe DiMaggio had roses delivered to Marilyn's grave twice a week for 20 years. Hollywood romance side note. Oh. When Hollywood icon Jean Harlow died... Her fiancé, William Powell, made sure that there were always fresh flowers at her grave. Marilyn loved this idea so much she told DiMaggio she'd like that to happen for her. And he did. And DiMaggio's final words on his deathbed were, quote, I'll finally get to see Marilyn again. Which is beautiful, right? Well, brace yourselves, because I'm about to destroy it. (laughs) Not because I want to, but because the facts... You're telling the truth. You're telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Joe DiMaggio is flipping through a newspaper when he comes across a publicity image of Marilyn posed swinging a bat during a practice game with the Chicago White Sox. DiMaggio was so taken with this photo, he called around for his friends until they could find someone they knew who knew Marilyn. And before he knew it, he was set up on a dinner date with her. DiMaggio arrived at the restaurant Villanova, and nearly two hours later, Marilyn arrived. 
It said that he was shy and intimidated by her and didn't mind one bit that she was late. At the time, Joe DiMaggio was 37 years old and retired from baseball, but making a living doing sports commentary on TV. He also owned a seaside restaurant in San Francisco called The Yankee Clipper. He was recently divorced from Dorothy Arnold and had a 12-year-old son named Joe Jr. Asshole side note! Dorothy sadly learned shortly after their marriage that her new husband drank, chain-smoked, and cheated constantly. When they had their son, DiMaggio barely paid attention to him and found having a child to be more of a nuisance. To a point where, whenever the baby was sick, DiMaggio would check himself into a hotel. Later in life, Joe Jr. would say of his father, quote, He was concerned with image, with how things looked. He wasn't concerned with me as a person. Dorothy filed for divorce in 1943, citing cruel indifference. So Marilyn is dating DiMaggio, and in 1952, her star in Hollywood started to rise. Her movie with Jane Russell called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes changed Marilyn from a popular actress to an eternal iconic image and beloved symbol. Unfortunately, this is the moment we're going back to the red velvet photos. The photos sat dormant for years. And then in 1952, they resurfaced on a pap a beer calendar with her name not listed on the calendar but it was fairly obvious it was her uh marilyn said quote just as i was beginning to go over with the public in a big way i got word that my nude calendar was going to be put on the market as a marilyn monroe novelty i thought this would push me into the cold again however when asked about it publicly marilyn completely owned it She was the first Hollywood star to face a big scandal, but to not back down and instead say, yeah, that's me. Now move on. And honestly, they did. (laughs) Somehow, this scandal did nothing but propel her star even farther. Frustratingly gross side note. (laughs) A year after the calendar came out, a young man purchased the negatives from the photographer for $500 and without Marilyn's consent. He posted one of these photos in a section called Sweetheart of the Month in his upcoming magazine. And not only that, but he also posted her name with it, which felt like a dick move, especially when she wasn't compensated for it. But then the photo propelled that magazine and the career of its creator. It was released in December 1953 and sold more than 50,000 copies, The young asshole in question, Hugh Hefner. The magazine, Mm. Playboy. Wow. There are a lot of things that are like, hey, did you know Marilyn was on the first was in the first issue of Playboy? I did not. Now I do, and now I know it wasn't a choice she made. He used her again. We'll get into that. You know, like the even more frustratingly gross side note. So Hugh Hefner uses Marilyn's photos to jumpstart his own career. Photos she never gave him permission to use, so he used her body and her name to make a name for himself, not to mention the fact that this sack of shit made a living off of degrading women. At some point, the crypt next to Marilyn's at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery went up for sale, and this disgusting excuse of a human 
purchased the spot next to Marilyn in 1992 for $75,000 because, as Hefner put it, quote, the chance to spend eternity beside Marilyn Monroe was too good to pass up. Hefner died in September 2017 from sepsis brought on by E. coli. And if there is any justice in the afterlife, I pray that Marilyn has never had to lay eyes on him. Yes. I didn't know he died from E. coli. Yeah. Was he eating poop? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, yeah, sure. <laughs> let's tell let's tell the world it. I mean, I don't miss him. There it is. You can get E. coli from other things. Like you can get E. coli from like, you know, um not properly washed spinach or whatever, but sure. At the end of the day, it's poop. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm not saying it's your fault. No. I'm saying that most people, I'm sure, who get E. coli, you know, it's not their fault. But yeah. Well, him, it's his fault. Let's just say it. <laughs> I, oh, just, it's the fact that he made so much money and oh. such a huge career off her and she didn't get money for it or didn't get any sort of, like, by the way, this is happening and could do nothing about it. That is a whole thing for me. So at this point, Marilyn and DiMaggio are going strong. And after years of Marilyn turning down his proposals, Marilyn finally says yes. And on January 14th, 1954, Marilyn and Joe DiMaggio eloped in the hopes of having a small wedding. But when they left the judges' chambers, they found the courthouse filled with about 500 reporters, photographers, and fans. And maybe that was a sign that their marriage wouldn't go quite as they expected because things started to go downhill quickly after that. Not only did Marilyn do a 10-show USO tour in Korea during their honeymoon, uh, but this was also the time that DiMaggio decided that their marriage needed some ground rules. Oh, no. One, DiMaggio has to approve all of Marilyn's future films. Two... She had to break out of her dumb blonde typecasting, a point she actually agreed with. Three, Marilyn was to never be semi-dressed. Four, and most importantly, she was never to outshine him. When she did, he'd sleep in another bedroom and go days without speaking to her. Dude, you married the brightest fucking star on the planet. And you think your dull-ass, Yankee, boring shit is going to outshine Marilyn Monroe? Oh my god, fuck off, Joe DiMaggio. (laughs) (laughs) And take Groucho with you. No, (laughs) I've got nothing against Groucho. Yet. Yet. Maybe I'll look him up and then next week just start going off about Groucho. Update. Yeah. (laughs) Groucho update. Oh, that's given me life. I may have to look into that. Uh, the, sm- the second Marilyn would return home from work, DiMaggio would ask, who did she talk to? What scene did they shoot? Did she speak to anyone on the way home? Who was it? Etc. And if that kind of treatment wasn't bad enough, DiMaggio also became physically abusive with Marilyn. Joe Jr. recalls a lot of yelling and fighting that happened in the months after the wedding. This is a quote from Joe Jr., Quote, I was asleep downstairs and I woke to the sound of my father and Marilyn screaming. 
After a few minutes, I heard Marilyn race down the stairs and out the front door and my father running after her. He caught up to her and grabbed her by the hair and sort of half-dragged her back into the house. She was trying, trying to fight him off, but couldn't. It's been said that on one occasion, DiMaggio even ripped an earring from Marilyn's ear. The state of their marriage caused Marilyn intense anxiety and she started drinking and taking sedatives. DiMaggio demanded to be on set for the seven-year itch. And for those who aren't familiar with the movie... This is, the, this is the infamous subway scene where Marilyn stands on a grate in this gorgeous white dress and the air blows up the dress and the dress flies up. Uh, the images of that scene have become iconic and are usually the first thing people think of when they think of Marilyn. Fashion side note! The iconic dress would later be auctioned off for $5.52 million, setting a record for the highest amount ever paid for a dress at auction. To who? Hugh Hefner? <laughs> oh, God, I was hoping he was dead already. But Oh, wow. You know, I, I don't know. I'm assuming probably like a museum or something. But some just something to draw in crowds, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Wow. Oh, Lord. Wow. Well, listen, yeah. ugh, there's so much that we're already learning. I, I didn't realize Joe DiMaggio was so abusive. This is so sad. This poor woman, everyone just using and abusing literally and figuratively. This is just, ugh, it's very overwhelming already. I have to say it. Every single person in her life. It's, it's sad. Yeah. Um, I'm also going to say... I have a misguided memorial side note. Oh, okay. Which doesn't make things better for her. But in 2011, a statue called Forever Marilyn was unveiled in Chicago. The 26-foot-tall, 17-ton statue was crafted from steel and aluminum by John Seward Johnson II. The statue moved to Palm Springs in 2012 and stayed on display for two years before moving to New Jersey in 2014. In June 2021, the statue returned to Palm Springs, where it is expected to live in front of the Palm Springs Art Museum for the next three years. However, people hate it. And honestly, same. <laughs> the best word to describe it? Eyesore. Oh. Not to mention the fact that it is sculpted in Marilyn's likeness from the subway great scene from Seven Year Itch with her skirt blowing up around her. Uh, a lot of people find it misogynistic and exploitive. And honestly, same. <laughs> it's appalling. Uh, there is a hearing set for July 20th of this year to decide whether the statue stays or not. Where it would go if the hearing says for it to leave, I don't know. Uh, I just think if you're going to honor a person, maybe don't do it in a way that has people looking at her underpants. Underpants. <laughs> Listen, all I know is if she's 26 feet tall, I'm going to need a 20 foot tall blanket that I'm going to need to get very hot in a dryer, put it around that statue uh, to send a message that that's what she needed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my point. I'm not. I'm not being a prude. Uh, if Marilyn had wanted this, of course, I would say, of course. 
Uh, but that poor woman spent the majority of her life trying to find someone who would love her for who she is, not what she looks like. So I truly believe she would have hated that fucking thing. I and think that's fair. Again, if she, it is so tall that you, if you try to look up at her, you're just going to see, again, underpants. And I just... Just stop well, it. Just treat her nicely. If it was a statue of <laughs> me, you. you'd be getting a whole lot more. <laughs> They'd be too focused on the... Well, no, I guess you'd have... Everything would be all clinched in at the top. Yep. So, yeah, they'd be looking at the show. Uh, yeah, exactly. Whereas, for my, whereas mine would be the opposite. You would, you'd want to look up to see everything that's covered because the top... Would be just swaying in the breeze. God, what would that like? <laughs> I just like the idea that for some reason there is a pair of twenty-six foot tall <laughs> true crime and cocktails statues, and for some reason they've they've dressed each of us half nude. I don't know why this would happen. I don't know where. I don't know how. But it somehow makes sense, you know? And I would like to be clear, that is not fan art that we want. We are not interested in it. I don't need it. Please I, stand I down, artist. Statues. Stand down. Statues of us, 26 feet tall, clothed. Yes. Sure. But if you could, like, raise my tits a little bit and shrink my ass a little bit. Oh then it no God. longer becomes a statue of me. And you well, get what you get. See, this is this is the attempt of turning 40 is attempting to just be like, you get what you get. This is who I am. Radical acceptance. I'm 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 working on it. It's, Listen, you're doing great. You know what I need well. to work on is a yeah. trip to the loo. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a whole lot more about Marilyn Monroe on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research it's a treasure trove of deep dives and it's all there for your enjoyment also on the website you can find our full unedited zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen and make sure to give us a follow on facebook at true crime and cocktails twitter at not detectives and the most important piece of information if you like the show please wherever you listen to it give us a nice rating go on to apple leave us a nice review i know it sounds like a silly cliche but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world and your support means the world to us but enough about all that get yourself another drink sit back and enjoy the rest of the show welcome back to the Unhinged would be the best way to describe me currently. Just unhinged. As I was saying, 
Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we are discussing Marilyn Monroe, and I think the ghost of Hugh Hefner may be haunting me right now because he said he ate shit. So there you go. Oh, all right. We left off. We were talking about a giant inappropriate statue. Yes. Uh, what you got for me now? Uh, well, speaking of the, the movie the statue was based on, yeah. uh, the director... For, of the seven year itch felt the need to do 14 takes of that scene mm-hmm. and since it was outside there was quite a crowd of gawkers and guess who didn't care for that oh joe dimaggio oh so when they get back to the hotel after dimaggio and Marilyn get into a massive fight which resulted in dimaggio hitting her and four weeks later just eight months after the marriage Marilyn files for divorce citing mental cruelty oh god this of course destroyed dimaggio who spent the rest of his life obsessed with marilyn which brings me to a uh super fucking creepy side note oh numerous sources have confirmed that after their marriage ended dimaggio spent ten thousand dollars on a life-size sex doll made in Marilyn's image. Stop. A year after their marriage, or after their divorce, rather, he showed the doll to a woman he was seeing and said, quote, she's Marilyn the Magnificent. She can do anything Marilyn can do, except talk. Barf. What's going on, Whoa. man? What's going on, men? What's going on? <laughs> well, um, I have a theory yeah. about professional athletes, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it is believed that Marilyn knew nothing of the doll, uh, because despite the fact that she divorced DiMaggio, she couldn't fully quit him. He was her knight in shining armor, always coming to her rescue when she needed. And honestly, at that point in her life, there was no one else that would come when she called. Weeks after filing for divorce, Marilyn had some sort of gynecological surgery, and it was DiMaggio who took her to the hospital and stayed with her throughout the five-day stay at the hospital and weeks of recuperation at home. Marilyn, in turn, took DiMaggio out to celebrate his 40th birthday. DiMaggio even started going to therapy for anger management in the hopes of winning Marilyn back. And while she never officially took him back, he will once again rear his ugly head in our story later on. Of course. In December 1954, Marilyn donned a brunette wig and used the name Zelda Zonk, which I love so much, Yeah. Uh, to travel to New York to reinvent herself. She soon began an affair with playwright Arthur Miller, known for Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. At the time, Marilyn was under contract with Fox Studios and was the only female star up to this point that was given director approval written into her contract. No other female star was given that level of creative control with the studio. So Marilyn, revolutionary. There you go. She would also later start her own production company after getting tired of only being offered the same type of dumb blonde roles. So yeah, Marilyn was a trendsetter there you go if i had read this stuff a year ago before i got cats i guarantee one of my cats would be named zelda zonk yeah 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 that's a good one because zelda zonk is 
in my heart and uh, I'm thinking a third cat and I just feel like I've heard my husband when this episode drops going no from another room. <laughs> and so I feel like if I hear it, I'll be like, yeah, that, he got to that part. Uh, in 1956, Miller uh, would be investigated by the House Un-American Activities Committee, the HUAC. Miller was a left-wing thinker and had attended meetings with other writers who identified themselves as communists and supported communist ideology. So people started to think that Arthur Miller might be a communist. On June 21st, 1956, he was called to testify in front of the HUAC in Washington, about his alleged communist associations and asked to name some of the other people who also attended the meetings. While Miller admitted to attending a few Communist Party writer meetings, he refused to name anyone that was there. And after the meeting, when he was asked about his future plans, he announced he would be marrying Marilyn Monroe, which was news to everyone, including Marilyn. The couple then married in a four-minute civil ceremony at the courthouse in White Plains, New York, June 22nd, 1956. And on July 1st, the couple had a quiet wedding at the home of Miller's agent, Kay Brown. Miller flew with Marilyn to the UK, where she would film The Prince and the Showgirl with Sir Lawrence Olivier. Miller agitated the crew by commenting on scenes and talking about all of the edits he felt they should make. Oh my God. This is like and, Brittany Murphy and what's his name? OG. Yeah. And to that I say, stand down, Arthur. <laughs> stand down. A hundred percent. Hollywood side note. Not as fun name, but still a side note. Uh, during Marilyn's time filming The Prince and the Showgirl, it is said that she had a brief love affair with a PA named Colin Clark. He wrote a book about it, and the book became the basis for the 2011 movie My Week with Marilyn, starring Michelle Williams as Marilyn and Eddie Redmayne as Colin. The reenactments in the movie of the scenes from The Prince and the Showgirl were shot on the same soundstage as the original. I actually made my husband watch that movie last night, and honestly... How are we not, as a society, screaming from the rooftops, praise for Michelle Williams? She is she, one of the best actors of our generation, for sure. I love her. She's so and good. And she was so good in it. Um, so Marilyn is trying to film, uh, and her husband is trying to seem more important than her. Doesn't that sound like other husbands she's had? Mm. Uh, and his insecurities and general assholeness made him irrationally angry with Marilyn, but instead of communicating his feelings with her like an actual adult, he wrote about her in his diary and left it open on a table next to her script where she would find it. There is no exact quote as to what was written in the diary, but it's been said that Miller claimed that Marilyn had disappointed him and she was not who he thought she was. It is believed the diary may in fact have been an early draft of his play After the Fall, in which he says some truly horrific things about her, but we'll get into that garbage in a moment. Um, there was also a part where he said he was ashamed of her and that when they would go to a party together, he spends the whole time wondering if she's sl previously slept with any of the men in the room. Yeah. And even though he treated her like shit, Marilyn put her career on the hold and moved to Long Island in the hopes of repairing her marriage. 
Unfortunately, Marilyn would suffer a series of miscarriages, and 18 months after she left, she would go back to the big screen after Miller suggested it and film Some Like It Hot. And what no one knew at the time was that Marilyn was actually pregnant during filming. However, she lost the baby shortly after filming ended. Some Like It Hot earned Marilyn a Golden Globe in 1960 for Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical. Fun side note, Michelle Williams won the same award in 2012 for her performance in My Week with Marilyn. That's cute. That is very cute. Uh, Marilyn's career was going well, and she was offered the lead in Breakfast at Tiffany's. But she was torn because at the same time, she was also offered to do a movie called The Misfits with Clark Gable. And while it seemed like she had to make a tough choice, I don't feel like she felt she had a choice at all because The Misfits was written by her husband, shitty Arthur Miller. Ugh. He called it his Valentine to Marilyn. So Marilyn turns down Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I think is a travesty because, God, I would have loved to have seen that. Not that there's anything wrong with the way it is. I'm just saying I'm on a real Marilyn kick now, folks. So it is what it is. So she films The Misfits, which would go on to be her last completed film. The film made Marilyn feel used as it would not have been made without her name attached. And she's right. Her husband used her name to get studios interested in it. It's not the only time. The piece of shit used her. After Marilyn's death, Miller would use her again with that bullshit play After the Fall, which he claimed was autobiographical and was very unflattering about Marilyn and their marriage. So shortly before the film's premiere, Marilyn and Miller got divorced, and thank God because he never deserved her. Yeah. Hollywood small world side note. (laughs) I told you they were going to come up, folks. I love it. Can't be stopped. She can't be stopped. Not to dwell on this piece of shit, but I was fascinated by this. So Arthur Miller married someone else less than a year after the divorce from Marilyn. How women found him to be desirable, I don't understand. So Miller and his wife had a daughter named Rebecca in 1962 and a son named Daniel in 1966. Their son was born with Down syndrome and Miller not only had him institutionalized, but he refused to visit him. Oh my God. So cut to a few years later, Miller's play, The Crucible, was being made into a movie starring Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis, who would meet Miller's daughter, Rebecca, on set and would marry her a few months later. The couple have been married since 1996 and have two sons together. It is said that Daniel Day-Lewis met his brother-in-law frequently and that he was the one to persuade Miller to visit his own son. So kudos, Daniel Day-Lewis, and to Arthur Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how did Arthur Miller end up dying? Was it also E. coli? Can I also say maybe he (laughs) ate shit? (laughs) I think he died. Crap, I did look it up. I don't think it was painful enough. I just, just stop, stop using oh, people. It's gro- oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. So the divorce from Arthur uh, led Marilyn to a very fragile mental state. In February 1961, she told her psychiatrist, Dr. Chris, that she'd considered jumping out the window of her 13th story apartment. But when she looked down, she saw a woman on the sidewalk and quote, I was afraid if I jumped, I could splatter all over her. So I just couldn't do it. 
On February 7th, Dr. Chris drove Marilyn to the hospital where Marilyn signed herself in as Faye Miller. However, it wasn't quite the experience that Marilyn thought it would be. While she was expecting a quiet place to decompress and have some one-on-one time with doctors, instead, the second she signed in, she was in... She was escorted to a psychiatric wing known as the Payne Whitney Clinic. Because she had admitted um, to have threatened suicide, she was locked in a bare cell-like room. She was first ordered to bathe under supervision. Afterward, a psychiatrist that she didn't know arrived to give her a full physical exam, including a breast exam. Marilyn attempted to explain that she had been given a complete physical less than one month before, but they didn't care what she had to say. After a few days, Marilyn was finally able to get to a phone where she called the only person she could think of, you guessed it, Joe DiMaggio. And when DiMaggio heard Marilyn crying, he said that's all he needed to hear. He got on the next flight, showed up at the hospital and said, I want my wife. And if that didn't work right away, he also tried, quote, I'll give you five minutes to get her out here or I'm tearing this fucking place apart brick by brick. You know, before this, I would have really been into that passion. (laughs) I know. If he wasn't such an asshole, that's like so hot. I know, right? It's like (laughs) he just wants what's best for her. And it's like, then be be a better person. I know. So Marilyn was then released into DiMaggio's care, which feels like maybe not the medical choice to make. Uh, but thankfully, he chose to take her instead to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where Marilyn introduced him to everyone as my hero. That's that's all that's all she needed, and he couldn't even handle that. <sighs> but before we mistakenly start feeling warm fuzzies for Joe DiMaggio, oh no! Please know that after they broke up, while Marilyn was living in New York, DiMaggio not only had her phone bugged. Uh, But he also used to wear a fake beard and cover his face with the New York Times while he sat in the lobby of her building, just hoping to catch a glimpse of her. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Then there was the time that while they were dating, uh, DiMaggio thought that Marilyn was cheating on him. So he got his buddy Frank Sinatra to grab some henchmen and go break down the door, hoping to catch Marilyn in the act. But these dum-dums broke down the door of a 50-year-old woman named Florence Katz who said she woke up at 11.30 p.m. to Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio just standing over her. She screamed. They left. The cops came. Their names were conveniently left out of the official report, but Sinatra paid the woman $7,500 in an out-of-court settlement. DiMaggio denied ever being there. Okay, I have a lot of comments on this one. Hold <laughs> please, on a second. Please. First yep. of all, this poor woman. Imagine calling the police and going, police, help. I just woke up and Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio <laughs> were standing over my bed. Immediately, they're going to be like, call the psych ward. Like, this yeah. poor woman. I just, I like that they're like, okay, we know where she's going to be. It's going to be great. We're going to go for it. And then they broke down the wrong door? I hope she was cheating somewhere else, and I hope she was having a great time. Yeah. There it is. Oh. But just what a weird, and I love that it. nothing says more like it happened than paying somebody off. Oh, yeah. 
you know yep. so if if it if frank says it happened fuck off dimaggio it happened um can i also just say and i don't yeah. want to like step on any toes or like do no, any spoilers no. but like mob like uh joe dimaggio just calls up frank sinatra and is like get some goons like you can't tell me that frank sinatra doesn't have he's dead right didn't have a an in right so well, there has to be it's just interesting to me like that just especially considering she died under mysterious circumstances i'm sure you're gonna get into all of it but it's just interesting yeah. that it's like so it was that easy for joe dimaggio to be like hey frank sinatra could you get a bunch of goons to come with me and and try and attack my ex-wife like <laughs> it's very dark yeah and in no way surprising based on things i've learned about <laughs> joe dimaggio <laughs> it, it, it seems again yeah very on brand Patriarchal side note. Oh. In 1954, 20th Century Fox wanted Marilyn to do a movie called The Girl in Pink Tights, where she would be top billed and receive $1,250 a week, while her co-star, Frank Sinatra, would be paid $5,000 a week. Marilyn said no, so the studio put her on suspension and tried to test other actresses in her role. <laughs> Like another girl could come in and just be Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, come on. Uh, well, maybe Michelle Williams. Uh, there it is. She's brought it back. The studio then gave Marilyn the script and asked her to reconsider. But she read it and went, oh, then really, no thanks. The movie never ended up getting made. The studio lifted her suspension and she filmed the movie There's No Business Like Show Business. But the point is, 5000 compared to 1250 so Marilyn and DiMaggio thankfully never rekindled their romance again. Marilyn did, however, date a 26-year-old screenwriter named Jose Bolanos, and some say she had affairs with both John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy. Neither relationship can be confirmed, although numerous people who were there claim that it happened. Years before, Marilyn briefly dated a fellow actor named Peter Lawford, in 1954, Peter married Pat Kennedy, sister of JFK and Robert, a.k.a. Bobby Kennedy. And because Peter and Marilyn ran in the same social circles, they were still friendly. And Marilyn became rather close with Peter's wife, Pat. Marilyn actually met JFK at a Lawford dinner party on November 19th, 1961. And it has been said that Marilyn and JFK used to use Lawford's beach house as a meeting place. But despite the rumors of a relationship, there seems to be only one photo in existence that contains Marilyn and either of the Kennedys. In this case, it's actually both of them. Um, and that was taken after the infamous JFK birthday celebration. On May 19th, 1962, there was a gala all-star show and political fundraiser at Madison Square Garden to celebrate JFK's 45th birthday. Marilyn was set to perform... And I can't help but wonder if that's why Jackie Onassis didn't go. Uh, it was simply said that Jackie, quote, opted not to attend. Mm -hmm. But Marilyn showed up way later than she was supposed to. But when she showed up, no one really gave a shit how long she took to get there. The lights go out. The building pitch black. A spotlight comes on and Peter Lawford introduced, quote, the late Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn comes out in a Bob Mackie custom dress that was literally one layer 
of sheer silk fabric and 2,500 crystals hand-sewn across it. It gave the appearance that she was wearing nothing but diamonds. Fashion side note! The dress was bought by Ripley's Believe It or Not at an auction in 2016 for $4.81 million. Marilyn sang Happy Birthday, and while it was only seconds long, it brought the house down. Some called it a very public seduction, and JFK said, quote, And now I can retire from politics after having had Happy Birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. So at this point, there is a huge rumor going that JFK and Marilyn were having an affair. But some also say the affair ended soon after and that JFK passed her off to his brother Bobby, which they say is just how it worked between them. That when JFK was done with a woman, he'd let Bobby pick up the pieces, which is gross. And as far as Blanche is concerned, the only male Kennedy worth taking a second glance at is JFK Jr. The rest? No, thank you. For some reason, I thought you were going to say Jamie Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) I have not even considered that. But gosh, I wish I did for the joke and nothing else. Uh, No, I, I, I was Googling pictures of John John there. They called him John John, didn't they? I don't know. I was Googling pictures of JFK Jr. And I forgot. (laughs) I forgot that he was, he had the looks from that entire family. Yeah. Shoved into his face. He did. But it is no secret that Marilyn overused pills. She was suffered from a lot of anxiety and some psychiatrists diagnosed her as manic depressive. She was known for using amphetamines for energy during the day and barbiturates to help her sleep at night. So in the last two months of her life, there were at least 15 different prescriptions filled by Marilyn. Marilyn's personal physician, Hyman Engelberg, and her psychiatrist, Ralph Greenson, had spent weeks weaning Marilyn off of a drug called Nembutal, which they had previously prescribed to Marilyn for sleep but now they were prescribing her the milder drug called chloral hydrate. However, on August 3rd, 1962, the day before she died, Marilyn filled two prescriptions at the pharmacy on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. One was for Phenergan, which is an antihistamine, and the other was for Nembutal. Now, there have been a lot of conflicting stories based on the times of what happened, but August 4th, Marilyn called Dr. Greenson around 4 p.m., asking for him to come to the house to see her for a session. Marilyn was particularly close with Dr. Greenson, not in a sexual way, but definitely in a he-shouldn't-have-been-treating-her-any-longer kind of a way. Mm. Marilyn spent her whole life looking for someone to fill the role of father figure, and by all accounts, it seems, she chose Dr. Greenson. So Dr. Greenson ended up feeling so bad for Marilyn about her longing to be part of a family, he would invite her to his home to spend time with him and his family. That's... No. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, but that feels like, I don't know, crossing a boundary? Yes. Uh, But Marilyn got to the point where she genuinely loved his family and wanted Greenson and his wife to adopt her. 
which destroys my heart. And to think she spent her whole life searching for people who would love her and look out for her. And in the end, there was not really anyone who did. Uh, Dr. Greenson goes to the house for this session with Marilyn. Greenson later said, quote, she seemed somewhat depressed, but I had seen her many, many times in much worse condition. When Greenson left Marilyn's house around 7.15 p.m., he asked Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, to keep an eye on her. Marilyn then received a call from Joe DiMaggio Jr. as she still kept in touch with her almost stepson. She then called Greenson again, who was dressing for a dinner engagement at the time. During the call, Marilyn asked Greenson if he had taken her Nembutal, which surprised him as he thought she wasn't taking it anymore. Marilyn just brushed it off and hung up. Marilyn then walked through her house looking for her Nembutal and found it on the nightstand in the guest room where her publicist, Pat Newcomb, had stayed the night before. Now Marilyn and Pat were close friends, but this weekend they had a bit of a falling out. Rumor has it that Marilyn had recently been dumped by Bobby Kennedy and that Pat was now having an affair with Bobby Kennedy. It is said that Marilyn was in a jealous rage over it as Pat was attractive, intelligent, and four years younger than Marilyn. Friends said, quote, Pat was deeply in love with Bobby. It took her many years to get over it. So were Pat and Bobby a couple? We don't know for sure, just like we don't know if Marilyn and Bobby were ever officially an item. The housekeeper said that Marilyn went to her room around 8 p.m. and said, quote, I think I'll turn in now, Mrs. Murray, and close the door. It was the last time that Marilyn was seen alive. Mrs. Murray herself turned in around 8.30. That night, Marilyn was meant to attend Peter Lawford's dinner party, but she had since called to cancel. Shortly after Marilyn entered her room at 8 p.m., Lawford called trying to persuade her to come to the party. Lawford said it was very clear to him that she was drugged. He then claims that she faded out and said, quote, I just want you to know that everything you've done for me is beautiful. I can't thank you and Pat enough. Say goodbye to Pat and Bobby. Say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. Then it goes silent. And so Lawford hangs up and immediately is trying to call her back repeatedly. Then at 8.15, he calls Milt Evans, who is a talent agent and insider with the Kennedy administration. Lawford begs Evans to try and reach Marilyn, but when he calls the operator, he's told the phone is off the hook. Lawford claims he said they should get in a car right now, go to her house, check on her. But Evans suggested against that, saying, well, if something happened, it wouldn't look good for the brother-in-law of the president to be found at the scene. Lawford claims he spent the night calling Evans and begging him to just go to the house. Two things. One, why did Evans assume that something dark might have happened? And two, if Lawford was so concerned, why didn't he just leave the dinner party the moment he sensed trouble and go to her house himself instead of calling someone and being like, you should go to her house. Maybe I'll go to her house. And then it was, no, you shouldn't go. In that moment, I would have been like, fuck it, I'm just going myself. So I just feel like this public display of, I was very concerned, was like, where are you, Peter? Yeah. So Evans decides that before they do anything, they should call a lawyer. What? So at, yeah. At 8.45 p.m., Mickey Rudin was called. Rudin was a well-known celebrity lawyer, and his famous clients include Marilyn, 
Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, among others. So Rudin asks, uh, calls Marilyn's housekeeper to ask if everything's okay. She says, quote, as far as I know, everything is fine. But since Mrs. Murray knew that Marilyn was in a bad mood over the potential Pat and Bobby affair, she didn't want to disturb Marilyn, didn't bother checking. Years later, Mrs. Murray would claim that if there had been more urgency in Rudin's voice, she would have at least banged on Marilyn's door. Mm. Based on the coroner's report, there was a high concentration of barbiturates in her liver, which means that the drugs had time to be absorbed, so Marilyn would have died slowly. At 10 p.m., Marilyn called Ralph Roberts, but the call was picked up by his answering service. The next day, he was informed he received a call from a woman with a slurred voice. They did not know who it was. At 4 a.m. Eastern Time, or 1 a.m. in Los Angeles, Lawford called the White House. Now riddle me this, dear listeners. If there was no relationship between Marilyn and JFK or Marilyn and Bobby Kennedy, why would someone notify the White House if there were concerns over Marilyn Monroe's well-being? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, over the years, Mrs. Murray has changed her story about what has happened and at what times, but she claimed she went to bed around 8.30 and that sometime after midnight, she woke up with a sense that something was wrong. She got out of bed to check the house, and that's when she noticed the phone cord was going into Marilyn's room under the door. This was unusual for Marilyn, as she never slept with the phone in her room. She would always put her private phone in a spare bedroom with the house phone, and then cover them with pillows and blankets so she couldn't hear them if they ring. Mrs. Murray also noted that Marilyn's bedroom was locked. So she goes outside through the front window just to look in, see what she can see into Marilyn's bedroom. She said, quote, I saw Marilyn lying on the bed, face down, nude. The light was on, so everything was wrong. So she called Dr. Greenson at around 2 a.m. And if it was me, for one thing, I would have checked the first time somebody called. Um, but at this point, I'm either breaking in myself or I'm calling a doctor, not a psychiatrist. Yeah. But Green Greenson arrived less than five minutes later, which I have a lot of questions about as well. He used a fireplace poker to break one of the windows and climb into Marilyn's bedroom. He said Marilyn's body was cold and blue and the receiver was still in her hand. Greenson then instructed Mrs. Murray to call Dr. Engelberg. Then, for reasons that no one has ever clarified, Greenson, Engelberg, and Mrs. Murray waited two hours before contacting the police. And if that wasn't sketchy enough, later, Mrs. Murray would say Marilyn's door didn't have a lock on it. What? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Police were notified at 4.25 a.m., and Marilyn was pronounced dead at the age of 36. The autopsy estimated her time of death between 8.30 and 10.30 p.m. Toxicology reports revealed um, that the dosages found in her body were several times over the lethal limit, with most being chloral hydrate and nembutol. There were no signs of external wounds or bruises on her body. Marilyn's doctors stated that she had been prone to severe fears and frequent depressions with abrupt and unpredictable mood changes, so with this in mind, combined with the fact that there didn't seem to be any indication of foul play, the chief coroner of Los Angeles County, Theodore Curfee, 
held a press conference to say Marilyn's death was caused by, quote, self-administered overdose of sedative drugs and that the mode of death is probable suicide. Since Marilyn didn't have any family who she was close to, Joe DiMaggio stepped up and organized the funeral. So he did one thing right. Oh, yeah. That was something. Curious side note. Mrs. Murray claimed that she awoke at midnight, but later would say she woke at 3 a.m. and called Dr. Greenson. And when he discovered that Marilyn was dead, they called Dr. Engelberg, who arrived at 3.50. If she was, in fact, dead when Dr. Greenson arrived, why weren't the police called immediately? And why did Eunice change the time to say she suddenly woke up three hours later than she did? What's going on here? And that, dear folks, brings us to the theories. I love it. Theory one. Suicide. Yeah. Marilyn had been fired from a movie in April 1962 after the studio felt she had too many unjustified absences. Mm. But again, this woman was suffering from depression and possibly other untreated mental illnesses, not to mention she suffered from endometriosis. Thank you. And gallbladder disease. So maybe those absences weren't so unjustified. Yeah. But, yes, she was let go. But on August 1st, 1962, Marilyn signed a contract with 20th Century Fox to do two movies for $1 million. Not to mention, she was rehired for the same movie that had let her go back in April. So she had work on the horizon. But is it possible that she was beside herself over this possible breakup with Bobby Kennedy? Maybe. But if her intention was to die, it seems odd there was no suicide note. I know there isn't always one. But the pill bottles were all neatly on the nightstand and all of their lids were perfectly on them as they should be, which just feels too neat and orderly to be the scene of someone who took an abundance of pills on purpose. Not to mention the fact that there were no glasses or water anywhere, so she would have swallowed all of those pills without a liquid of any kind. Oh. Again... I guess it's possible, but I know I could never know exactly what was going on in her mental and emotional state at the moment, but I could see it being more of an accident as opposed to an actual suicide. Head coroner Thomas Noguchi, who you may recall from the Natalie Wood episode, Oh my word, said that the scene was not a typical suicide scene and that he collected and sent organ samples for analysis but the specimens were destroyed before the tests were done. They took medical photos during the autopsy. They went missing. Noguchi said, quote, It's like a jigsaw puzzle, and there are 100 pieces. I believe perhaps a dozen pieces are missing. Why would they all go missing if it was a simple suicide? Yeah. Well, That'll bring us to theory number two, the Kennedys. So it's no surprise people would think the Kennedys are involved. They were an incredibly powerful family, and if Marilyn had been with both JFK and Bobby, or even just one of them, she could cause a lot of problems for them if she goes public. It's believed that Bobby ended things with Marilyn and that in turn she threatened to hold a press conference about what she knew. 
And I'm not just talking about possible possible relationships here. It has been suggested that the Kennedys were both very open with Marilyn about certain government secrets, including, dare I say, what I never thought I would say in this episode, Roswell UFOs? Stop. There was even a classified document that was released the day before Marilyn died that suggested that JFK had shared certain UFO-related secrets with Marilyn. It's been said that Marilyn kept a little red book full of any secrets that she was told or overheard while she spent time with the Kennedys, so it's believed that Marilyn was killed by someone for the Kennedys, because let's face it, JFK and Bobby were high enough in that family, they weren't going to get their hands dirty. Yeah. The specific theory that I saw come up time and time again is that the Kennedys ordered someone to give Marilyn a hot shot or basically an injection of a lethal amount of, in this case, Nembutal. Well, there were no needle marks found on her body anywhere. So this idea starts to seem less likely. And the fact that there were more drugs in her liver than in her in her blood means that it was a longer, more drawn out death, not the instant death that a hot shot would cause. But could they have waited in her room for hours and just kept feeding her pills? I'm not saying no. Or could they have, I don't know, paid off someone who had access to do that? Like, say, oh, I don't know, a housekeeper? Oh. <laughs> Maybe. Right? I was thinking also, if we're on the train of thought of, could they have had somebody else do it? Well, that, that brings me right to theory number three. The mob. I knew it. It's believed that she was possibly taken out by the mob. Some have suggested the mob did this as a favor for the Kennedys, but some have suggested the mob did it to punish the Kennedys and that Marilyn was just the beginning. For one thing, there is absolutely a connection between the Kennedys and the mob. It is said the mob helped JFK win the election, especially in Illinois. But then JFK went and gave Bobby, who was the attorney general at the time, the go-ahead to go after the mob. And that surely would piss them all off. So the theory is the mob wanted payback for the legal trouble the Kennedys were recently causing them. And it is said that Marilyn's death was just the first, as JFK was assassinated in 1963 and then Bobby assassinated in 1968. Chicago mob boss Sam Mooney Giancana, uh, Gian Giancana uh, is said to have admitted to killing Marilyn. His mistress Judith Exner said that Giancana had confessed to eliminating Marilyn as a contract killing. In a book uh, written by Giancana's brother and nephew called Double Cross, they claim Giancana admitted to eliminating Marilyn with a Nembutal-laced suppository. I didn't think we were going to end up talking butts, but here we go, well, folks. not since the Hugh Hefner bit. <laughs> well, I mean, it turns out this whole thing just comes full circle. Yeah. Uh, according to the autopsy report, the lower portion of her colon was discolored, 
so some have theorized that it could be from a suppository of some sort. However, others have said, well, a coroner would have found the outside casing of the suppository somewhere. It would have either still been in there or it would have come out. But what if it did come out first? Sure, they didn't see it at the scene, but when police arrived at the scene at 4.25 a.m., they noted that Mrs. Murray was running the washing machine. Who does laundry at 4.30 in the morning unless they're cleaning up something, I don't know, incriminating? Was she helping the mob or was she threatened to help them? Who knows? I'm just saying. Mrs. Murray is sketchy at best. Yes! But why would the mob want to take out Marilyn? Did they do it to punish the Kennedys or to help Marilyn help the, help the Kennedys if Marilyn had threatened to go public? Well, the mob claims the reason that they did it is because they were ordered to by the CIA. <laughs> what? Which brings us to theory four, the CIA. Did the CIA have the mob take out Marilyn or did they do it themselves? It has been suggested the CIA took her out with a Nembutal-laced enema. Eunice Murray had admitted that she administered enemas to Marilyn frequently for health reasons. So, is it possible? Maybe. Would that explain why she was doing laundry at 4.30 in the morning? And how Marilyn's body seemed almost placed on the bed instead of she was laying specifically like that? I think so. But why would the CIA care about what Marilyn Monroe did? Well... Theory goes that if Marilyn was found dead under mysterious circumstances, Bobby Kennedy would get questioned, and as he was the attorney general at the time, he would probably have to resign over it, and it would destroy his career. And with the link to JFK, he would potentially also have to resign, especially when a phone number to the White House was found on a piece of paper in bed with Marilyn. Whoa. And I will point out that there is a heavy debate about whether or not Bobby was even in Los Angeles at the time of Marilyn's death. According to the Kennedys, Bobby was on a ranch with his family south of San Francisco. But 18 different witnesses, including a neighbor of Marilyn's and a neighbor of Peter Lawford's, claim that they saw Bobby Kennedy either in Los Angeles or specifically at Marilyn's house on the day she died. It took the doctors and Mrs. Murray hours to call the police. Was that to give Bobby a chance to get out of town? Well, a decorated police officer from the Beverly Hills Police Department thinks so. Around 12.10 a.m. on the night of Marilyn's death, Officer Lynn Franklin pulled over a Lincoln Continental doing 70 miles per hour in a 25-mile zone. That's 112 kilometers per hour in a 40 zone for our metric listeners. Thank you. So Officer Franklin pulls the car over and in the back seat, Bobby Kennedy. Passenger seat in the front has an unknown male. The driver, Bobby's brother-in-law, Peter Lawford. Mm-hmm. Lawford claimed he was trying to get Bobby to the Hilton Hotel to pick up his luggage as he was leaving town. 
But then the officer pointed out, that's weird because the turnoff for the Hilton Hotel was about two miles back. So was Bobby in L.A. or wasn't he? The chief of the LAPD said that records show that Bobby was in L.A. that day. So my question is, why are you lying about it, Bobby? Yeah. And then, don't worry, we'll get to, I mean, I'm probably going to rant about the Kennedys later anyway. I can't but wait. But we're going to go to theory five that I've just titled Overprescribed. Mm. Between June 7th and August 3rd, Marilyn had at least 15 prescriptions filled, mostly for antidepressants, barbiturates for sleep, and Librium for anxiety. The thing that bothers me is that a lot of the drugs she was prescribed seemed to be for the side effects that were caused by the other drugs she was prescribed. On July 1st, she was prescribed Dexedrine for energy. It's a drug usually prescribed to help with ADHD, but it causes trouble sleeping and nervousness. And wouldn't you know it, just nine days later, her doctor prescribes three different drugs to help her sleep and a drug to help with her anxiety. And it should be noted that both of the drugs that she was prescribed come with warnings that state, contact a doctor right away if you have a persistent sore throat. Well, on July 17th, just one week after getting this prescription, she gets another prescription for her sore throat. Mm. And that's just wild to me that it's one of the main symptoms that screams like, holy shit, go see a doctor immediately. And the doctor's like, ah, just take some more pills. So July 25th, she's prescribed chloral hydrate, which is uh, her doctor used to try and wean her off of her preferred sleeping pill, Nembutal. But chloral hydrate is known to cause diarrhea. Again, we're back to butts. <laughs> And it is said it should not be combined with an antihistamine. Well, Dr. Engelberg prescribed her more pills for the diarrhea on July 27th, a refill of the chloral hydrate just eight days later, and then an antihistamine to help her sleep. And I know that I just said a lot of medical names, and it may be, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm in a frantic headspace. I love my it. Point, my point being, every medication that she was prescribed had side effects, and the doctor prescribed her a new medication to take care of those side effects. And while I'm not a doctor, this just feels like this poor woman was just plied with pills over and over again. Yeah. Not to mention the amount of medications she was prescribed that said... Do not take if you have a personal or family history of mental or mood disorders, which was very clearly on her maternal side when her mother and her grandmother and her mother's father, gr grandfather, like, come on, like, she should yeah. not have been taking the majority of what she was taking. No. And yes, it's possible that back then these side effects and warnings weren't really known because it was, after all, nearly 60 years ago. It just all feels way too much to be giving someone, especially when the majority were from a single doctor. That one Nembutal at the end was, I believe, was a different doctor. But everything else, it was all this same schmo who should not have been giving her pills. No. 
I'm, I'm frantically taking notes because I'm just developing my own theories. So just know that. Well, I like it. Here's the thing. Um, do you want to go with your theory first or do you want to hear mine first? Because mine will have new information in it. Yeah, I'm probably going to want to hear yours first, but I also yeah. have to pee. So let's take a really quick break. We'll be right back with uh, more about Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> All right, welcome back. We're going to get into Christie's theory right now. Theory, theories, I don't know. One, more than one, an amalgamation. Well, I mean, I, I've wrote, written something that I already don't know what I've written. And then I might just go off the top of my head on something. Who knows? I'm, if, I, if I don't bitch enough about the Kennedys in this, <laughs> I'm probably going to find a reason <laughs> to do so otherwise. So my gut overall is leaning towards possible unintentional overdose although i think the doctor was were glorified pill pushers for her uh but i can't help but think some of the conspiracy theories might be on to something it is well known that both the kennedys and the cia bugged Marilyn's house numerous people had the ability to hear what was going on in her house that night but somehow the tapes recorded the night she died, were seized, and then destroyed. And if she was alone when it happened, why would those tapes matter at all? And when police went to get the phone records from the phone company, they found that the records had already been taken by the Secret Service. Stop. And the police files on Marilyn's death were, quote, destroyed in compliance with departmental procedures. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's because they were told to. Yeah, exactly. So it all just feels like a cover-up. I think she was in a relationship with Bobby Kennedy and that she was upset to learn that Bobby was ending things because he had started seeing her close friend, Pat Newcomb. And I think that she took, she was taking pills and that she may have threatened to come forward with an affair, which could have destroyed his career, especially since he wanted to run for president someday. And maybe he just kind of kept feeding her pills until she stopped breathing. I don't know the logistics of it, but I think that the Kennedys are involved somehow. And the fact that JFK was assassinated less than 18 months later, and the fact that the man who assassinated him, Lee Harvey Oswald, was then murdered two days later by a man named Jack Ruby, who was an associate of Sam Giancana, the mob boss... And that Jack was not a member of organized crime himself, but, quote, had significant number of associations and direct and indirect contacts with underworld figures. Jack Ruby died in prison four years later from lung cancer. So did he know he was going to die? So he willingly did this favor for the mob because it didn't matter what happened to him. Why take out Oswald? This is what my brain looks like when I'm researching. I'm like a snake eating its own tail. I'm just over and over. My brain is devouring itself because that's literally how it goes is, oh, okay, so Marilyn, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby. Like, it does not stop. My point being, I think the Kennedys were just a few of the men who mistreated Marilyn her whole life. And I think, yes, I think they're shit is my point. And 
I did see in uh, one of the documentaries, I can't remember which one, that there were big stories about like, oh, the Kennedys are involved, but they didn't get put in North America. No North America news ran it. Everywhere else internationally ran it. So if you were like UK, Australia, whatever, you saw stories about they think the Kennedys are involved, whereas in America, especially, it was, nope, nothing came out about them because they are that fucking powerful, which I'm terrified of and also grossed out by and also a little jealous of. <laughs> She's back to wanting power mm-hmm. and fries. Of course. Always fries. Just assume I oh, always yeah. want fries, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, Spencer and I have a standing rule. If he ever is picking up food and I say, don't get fries, I, get, just get fries. Just get fries. There, I, I don't know if it was a tweet or what it was, but it was like, an, if you ever stop at a gas station, just get your wife a snack. Even if you think she doesn't want one, always get her a snack. And the, it, yes. Yes. Be safe and get the snack. I, I always want the snack. Always get the fries. <laughs> always get the fries. Don't listen to me. I don't know what I, I... Oh, I don't want fries. I always want fries. Yeah. Right now, you doesn't. But five minutes from now, you wants those damn fries. Yep. Just get the fries. All the time. Get the fries. Okay. Wow. Wow. This is... <laughs> this is wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have lots of thoughts. I... Well, I can't wait. There's... I mean, I, I didn't expect to bring up butts. I didn't expect to bring up <laughs> aliens. Aliens and butts, but not in the way you think. I didn't expect a lot of these things to come out, but I expected to feel a lot of anger for the Kennedys. I mean, I've also heard that there were, uh, that there was a document in the FBI that came out amongst the FBI that implicated Bobby Kennedy in her murder. Really? And somebody saw it and immediately just shoved that so far down deep. That no one could find it, which, come on. I mean, I think, I think easily, easily that she was probably, she probably dated both of them, but I think she was with Bobby and I, I think he dumped her because he was very clearly seeing this other woman who, especially suppose, according to, uh, Peter Lawford in her long drawn out, like, say goodbye to everyone you're so lovely it was say good and say goodbye to pat and bobby as though pat and bobby were a couple not bobby and his wife i can't recall what her name was but it was not pat so obviously at least the what they're trying to make us believe is marilyn in that moment was like they're a couple and if this woman supposedly took it took years for her to get over Bobby dying it's like they were probably a couple so yeah I could see I would be a little angry and jealous rage and jilted if the person that I was into left me for a younger woman especially when it's somebody I know I mean yeah I don't think you're wrong I don't think you're wrong there now, how do we know that this Pat woman isn't involved? We in don't. Stuff? Yeah. I just feel, you know, it just feels like there is 
there are only multitudes of people who all have opportunity and all have some varying degree of motive. Yeah. It's interesting also. It's so sad. Like what a what a sad story overall because again it just feels like this is somebody who just got you know used and abused by literally everybody like right up to her death. Yeah. I have a th- I have a few thoughts. Yeah. So go with me on this. Okay. You got to love it when that's how it starts. You said that and I've taken a lot of notes. Yeah. You've said that Mrs. Murray that the housekeeper yeah routinely gave Marilyn enemas for health reasons yeah. quote unquote is it possible and now i want to preface this by saying i don't think that this is a thing okay okay i'm not saying that i think this is what you do yes but is it possible that they had some sort of arrangement where if marilyn took too many pills then Mrs. Murray would f- try to flush her system and give her an enema to try and move things through. Go with me. Sure. Let's let's say that's just a standing thing they have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because an enema will also, you know, it will, will clean you out and stuff like that. I, I don't sure. know whether there was potentially logic there that they had. How did the bugs get in her house that the CIA or whoever put there? Someone has had access to her house without her knowing. She didn't she didn't agree to that, I'm assuming. Yeah, as far as I know, she didn't know about it. So if she was close enough with the Kennedys that they were telling her government secrets, secrets about aliens, all of these things. Yeah. Isn't it also feasible that the Kennedys would know things about her? Like, oh, sometimes I take too many pills, so my housekeeper gives me an enema. So that oh, down 100%. the road when there was trying to be, you know, some sort of way to get rid of her, mm-hmm. the same people that snuck into that house to fill it full of recording listening devices, couldn't they have also switched out an enema to put it full of whatever the drug is? Yeah. 100%. That's my first theory. Yeah. I I mean, again, who knows? Is it possible... That there was something going to come out about Bobby Kennedy. If she had been with Bobby Kennedy and he's going on to Pat, is it possible that this was smaller scale? That she was going to tell Pat the truth about Bobby's bad behavior or something that had gone wrong between them? Or sure. was she pregnant? Now we know that she has a history of of pregnancies and very sadly she has a history of miscarriages which uh, with endometriosis is not uncommon is it possible you know what i mean that she was pregnant with bobby's baby and then bobby is like peace out i'm gonna go get with pat he may not have even known she was pregnant but is it possible that somehow he was trying to or powers that be were trying to stop her from Telling Pat about this, going public with this, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's more than possible, especially when a lot of the organ samples that they took magically were destroyed before they even got anywhere to be tested. And it's the fact that the the phone records specifically got taken by the Secret Service. 
They didn't get taken by the FBI, the CIA, whatever. They got taken by the Secret Service. The Secret Service only works for the White House. Mm-hmm. Only. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that says to me that she has to have called him that night or called somebody at the White House that night. And the fact that she had the number for the White House phone in the bed with her when she was found would say to me she made a call to that White House. Yeah. Who? Who knows? But And that's the other thing. Did she have the paper and she was making the call? Or did she already know the number and somebody placed the paper there to make it look like, oh, look, she was calling the White House. I bet the White House knows something about this. Like, so was somebody setting up somebody at the White House? Could it be that too? I mean. Absolutely. I have a lot. I just, I have a lot of questions and a lot of answers I don't want about what the president is capable of and doing without my knowledge not that i need to get told not that i need to be brought in on the email chains but like just like a, it'd be nice to know i just I, I get that i'm even in a different country so i shouldn't care but just the idea the idea of what the mob is capable of alone oh. is terrifying to me uh but also like intrigued the idea of what the president can do it's just there is a level of power there that is terrifying i i guess i just keep thinking of the president from national treasure where there was he had that book that nicholas cage was like i'll look into the book and i'm just like tell me the book exists because i want to find it someday and i want to read it (laughs) i want to i want to know like do presidents really pass down stuff to each other I mean, I just have a lot. I have a lot of questions. I want to know, was like, in is there a book like that in real life? If we found it, would one of those pages have Marilyn's phone number? <laughs> you know, would one of those pages be like Groucho Marx? Not so bad. Like, I, I don't know. We're gonna have to find out about that. Yeah, we really do. Peter Lawford. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we trust him? We don't. Could she have been having an affair with him? Well, I was torn because seeing him comment, his claim that it was, I called her, something wasn't right, I kept calling, I kept calling all night, I kept calling this guy to be like, go and see her, go and see her. So if that's truly what was happening, then it makes you think he was beyond concerned for her. So it makes you wonder, they dated when she was like an up-and-comer like years before, is it possible they... Things just didn't work out, but they remained friendly. And it was like a, he always, you know, held a candle for her. Is that, that's not the expression. I think it's held a, to- held a torch, <laughs> carried a torch. There that's the expression. Carried, carried a, torch. a torch. Yep. Yeah. Did, has, did he always carry a torch for her? Was he still like, cause I feel like once you go Maryland, you don't go back, you well, know, like hearing. Yeah. So I just feel like. Was he still in love with her? And then was this like a panic? But if it was, why didn't he just straight up go, forget what any of this looks like. I'm going to go and check on her. Well, my question is this. Yeah. Who can corroborate his alibi? Well, I don't know. And see, that's the other thing. The If he was, I think the whole like, oh my God, I need to get there. I'm panicked. I feel like that was an act. Because at first when I read that, I was like, oh. 
I think he really loved her. But then I read about the cop who's like, I pulled over the car and he was driving. So then I'm like, oh my God. So it was just a whole lie the whole time being like, did he have someone at his house calling that number repeatedly so that if phone records checked, it was like, oh yeah, this, it matches his story. They were calling this person, the number matches up or whatever. Where when you first said really it to home, me, when you first said it to me, that was my gut as I was like, why are we trust? Like it just, why is he making it sound like he's so concerned? Cause you're right. If he was that concerned, why wouldn't he just go? My point is what if he was there the whole time? There is somebody making these calls for him or whatever. What if he was there as actively as a part of this the whole time? Because the other, th the problem is, is that there is nobody involved here whose word we can take. We can't take the housekeeper's word. Nope. And it feels to me like she has to know something. Now, whether she yeah. was paid off or threatened with her life, who knows? There's a variety of reasons why she could be complacent and quiet, keeping yeah. quiet or went along with whatever. But to me, it just seems unlikely. It just seems unlikely that he, that, that his story is true. I just don't buy it. Especially then yeah. with the detail that he got pulled over that night, right? Like it's. Yeah, that's, see, that's the thing. I don't know. I just, to go, to be like, I was so concerned, but to go over the top. And if you're, if you were genuinely that concerned, you're just going to go. And the fact of, if you were that concerned and you had gone, you could have saved her life. Yeah. So if you were really that concerned, which I don't think you were, because I think you were actually driving her ex-boyfriend out of town so he could quickly get a private helicopter or private plane or whatever, get back to where he claimed to be. So the next morning he could be like, I've been here the whole time. What about this? Yeah. Peter Lawford, Bobby Kennedy, Pat, Mrs. Murray. Yeah. Mar Marilyn are all at Marilyn's house. What if it's like, not an intervention, but what if they've sat her down to tell her, listen, Bobby and Pat are a thing now. Oh. And she doesn't react well. She takes a mitt full of pills or whatever. She makes the phone call we know she, she made. Yeah. And we're trusting that, we're trusting that detail to be true. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I also feel like everybody can be bought and make up lies and so hundred percent tough to know if anything is true but let's say that that's true so maybe she takes a mitt full of pills and it's chaos and whatever and then when things escalate it's like holy shit and that's why there's that discrepancy of time where we got to get shit into the wash mrs murray we got to yeah. get this area cleaned up we got to get bobby out of here before we call the cops i got to get bobby to the airport and back yeah before we call the cops. I mean, it's possible. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, again, I there have to be, those candidates have to be involved somehow. And the detail that he was seeing this other woman instead, someone she knew, she's not going to take that well. She's not going to take being rejected again, you know, very well. Oh. I mean well and then my next my my only other point that I have at this point yeah. that I felt like I wanted to hit on if the autopsy results are true yeah. and again let's just say that they were because you know we can begin to we can go back and forth with like everybody could be bought off and all of this could be lies but let's 100%. say it's true 
if her time of death is between 8.30 and 10.30. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She goes to bed at 8. She takes whatever. She takes enough of whatever to potentially die within a half an hour. But we know that there's so much in her liver that it's a long, slow death. Yeah. Then wouldn't one argue that she would have had to have been taking that stuff into her system far sooner than 8 o'clock? You would think so, if it's possible that she was dead by 8.30. This is what I'm saying. So what then was one of the, was the psychiatrist involved somehow? Because he was supposedly there until 7.15. Right. I had also heard, that I'm just thinking of now, that before police were called, they called the uh, publicity department at one of the studios. To figure out, like, how are we supposed to handle this? It's like, or just, how how is nobody's reaction to there is someone here, not just an immediate get help? You know, yeah. I just don't get how that is. I don't get the whole, like, her door was locked, we couldn't get in, and then years later going, oh, her door didn't have a lock on it. Yeah. And there's... the, I woke up at 12, and, well, I woke up at 3, and then we're like, you know what? While I'm up, I guess I'll do the laundry. My thing yeah, is, that's... check what was in the laundry. What was in yeah. it? Like, it's weird. And multiple cops were like, it stood out to us that she was doing laundry at that hour. And yeah, I'm sure someone's going to be like, I actually prefer to do my laundry at 4 a.m. And kudos to you. I, I'm not alive at 4 a.m. Oh, 4 a.m. Yeah, no. I I wait till the last possible second to get up to get my kids to school. And uh even that just again, I could stay up till 4 a.m. sometimes, but never ask me to get up at 4 a.m. You know, like I'm definitely a night over a day or a morning. But the yeah, there's yes. the the housekeeper feels like she has to be involved somehow. Based on her access, she'd have access to the house. The laundry was a weird thing. She can't keep the story straight on the time. And I know it's not a big deal, I'm sure, but it rubs me the wrong way that she looks in a room and sees Marilyn. It, she's passed out. She feels something's not right. And her instinct is, yeah, I'm going to call the psychiatrist. What would the yeah. psychiatrist do in that moment? And the answer is supposedly break a window and get in and go, we should call an actual doctor. Psychiatrists are actual doctors. I mean, a medical doctor. Like medical doctor. Yeah, yeah, a medical doctor. So it's just, he was not the call to make. No. And also at that point, if you're like, oh, well, by the time we got there, she was dead. I guess we'll call her doctor. And it's like, or then also call the police and be like, we found her like this? I have one other thought. Oh, I can't wait. Does it involve UFOs? I wish. Does it involve butts or Groucho Marx? <laughs> <laughs> well, UFO probings are known to be a common story. No. We know that Mr. Jealousy himself, Joe DiMaggio called his buddy Frank Sinatra and had him get his goons oh. 
to kick down a door at one point. Yeah. And again, my question about that story is, what would you have done if you found her? Killed her? That's So let's point. take this from a complete new, let's look at this from a complete different direction now. Yeah. What if Joe DiMaggio, right? Because we know that he was back and forth and in and out and back and forth and in and out. Yeah. Right? What if he was one of the people who bugged her house? We know he's done that before. True. What if what if he learned that she was having a relationship potentially with one of the Kennedys? Oh. Two of the most powerful men in the country. You think Joe DiMaggio's ego could handle that? No. If he couldn't handle Marilyn outshining him, he's not going to be able to handle He doesn't want to be replaced by the president or uh, what was Bobby Kennedy, attorney general yeah. or whatever at the time? He... How is that going to make him look? So what if he calls up old Blue Eyes again and says, you're not going to believe this. I've been listening to the tapes and Marilyn is having an affair, let's say, with Bobby Kennedy. I want us to go over there and rough him up or rough her up or who knows. Right. Right. But what if there was an altercation? Now, I know there was no apparent physical damage to her body. Right. Though, again, do we trust the medical examiner? Because that's, that's a whole other story. Yeah. We know that other evidence went missing. But you know what I'm saying? What if there, or what if it didn't even escalate to physical? But what if there was some sort of altercation? Like, what if all of these things, like, you know, came together in, like, some sort of perfect storm? Frank Sinatra and his goon mob ties show up with DiMaggio. She's there with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy's trying to break up with her. Oh. Or or what if that's not even true? What if that's the cover-up story? Oh. What if Joe DiMaggio had Frank Sinatra bring his mafia guys over and they did kill her because she was in a relationship with Bobby Kennedy and the Kennedys and everybody spun a story that he had just broken up with her for her friend Pat to make it look like she committed suicide. That gives her her own motive. What if that had no part of it at all? What if Bobby Kennedy wasn't cheating on her? Oh, if Bobby Kennedy genuinely loved her and was good to her. <laughs> but he wouldn't be in death, right? If, if this was true. So. Uh, true, but the point. The point is, the idea, I mean, I also realize he was cheating on his wife with her, so it's not like he was, you know, 100%. It's not a a romance. It's not a romance. But But you see what I'm saying? Like, what if if the the Pat story was a red herring? What if that was the spun story after the fact to make it look like, well, Marilyn flew into a jealous rage. She was inconsolable. It was her friend four years younger than her. Oh, how sad for Marilyn. What if that's all bullshit? That's a good point. Well, I also could not love more that it was almost like you were reading a Mad Lib. So we've got Frank Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio and Bobby Kennedy. You don't think they all link together, but they do. They do. That's a great point. Where was Joe DiMaggio? I mean, her only savior always, the man she was touting as her hero always, and he had nothing to do with this. Huh, okay. Yeah, huh. the idea the that man it was again, like, who she's we... not coming back to you. You can't tell me he just went, all right. And again, 
there's a difference between nerdy author Arthur Miller yeah. and the president of the United States oh, or the yeah. attorney general of the United States. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I just feel like if he, if we know he has a past of this kind of obsessive behavior, the bugging, asking people to go <sighs> break her door down because he thought she was having an affair before, if we know that he has that past, yeah. why is he, I, I think he needs to be on the list. Oh, he needs to be on the list. And you're right. Who finds Arthur Miller to be a threat? No one. The idea of, because I know a lot of people seem to find the Kennedys attractive. Plus, if you factor in that level of power, come on. Come on. And at that point, he wasn't even at like his baseball peak. At that point, he'd retired. And he was, you know, doing sports commentary and running a restaurant. Or I guess he just owned it specifically. But compared to the the president or somebody from his cabinet, I mean. One more thing to add to this. Oh, please. We also know that the message that was apparently left for Ralph Roberts at 10 o'clock. Yeah. By Marilyn. All that was said was it was an extremely drugged sound wo- sounding woman. That could have been Mrs. Murray. Why do why are we assuming that that for sure was Marilyn? Oh. Any woman could impersonate her, yeah. especially if it's someone who was around her all the time. And you think if you just start slurring your speech and right, like why are we trusting that? That's she could have been dead by point. then, and then then and then, you know. Whoever, whether it's Mrs. Murray or Pat or, or another woman that we don't even know about. Yeah. If if Marilyn was already dead by 8.30, let's say, and this call goes at 10 o'clock, again, that's trying to subvert from the facts and subvert from the, the evidence, right? Yeah. Who's to say? You don't think, like, like, and this is no disrespect to Marilyn Monroe at all, I don't want to say, but she had a very specific sounding voice. Yes. Right? And I don't know if that was her talking voice in real life as well or if that was more of an affected character voice right. she kind of did in general. But either way, doing an impression of somebody who's yes, I, I just wanted to call and say Right? That's a good point. Yeah? It was a woman who sounded drugged. That was what the messaging service said. There was nothing on there that, that gives any proof that that was Marilyn. That's true. Because yeah, in a court of law, that's not gonna that's not gonna hold up. There's no proof. There was another woman in that house. There's no proof that that couldn't have been somebody impersonating her. That's a good point. Oh, this is why we do this. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Oh, oh I, <laughs> I am gonna quote it. I am jazzed. <laughs> Uh, my my hope is every time you wear that shirt, that's how you feel. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not jazzed that that this happened to poor Marilyn no, Monroe. No, no, poor of life was not. so 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 sad. But it just feels to me again like there is a bigger story here that I think it's safe to say no one will ever know the truth about. When you're bringing in government organizations like yeah. the CIA, and you're bringing in things like the mob. There's no yeah. way that we will ever know the truth because everyone has a price 
And yeah. sometimes that price is the fear of your own life or the fear of the life of your loved ones. I'm not saying, again, that people who were took part in this were necessarily bad people. They were, could have been operating under duress. We don't know. Yeah. Point being, I just think, I think there's a lot more uh, possibilities. Oh, 100%. Not to mention the fact that it's been next year, I believe, is 60 years since it happened. So if it's gone this long, anybody who could be like, okay, yeah, is probably not around. Like, who in that situation is still alive today? Arthur Miller died years ago. Joe DiMaggio died in 99 or nine in the nine, late 90s some point. Peter Lawford died, like both of the Kennedy, like everybody almost in that situation has died. So no one's going to be saying anything. Nope. Hmm. Final oh. bat shit. Bat shit thought. Astral projection. <laughs> From the womb. No. I would like that. What if... This is cuckoo bananas, okay? I, I'm, I get it. Mm-hmm. But you made the connections from Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. What if Joe DiMaggio is behind the killing of JFK and Bobby Kennedy? What if he's connected to that? Because wasn't the guy the mob guy? that you named that had the connection? Yeah. Isn't that the guy that Frank Sinatra had the connection to? I don't know if Frank Sinatra knows him, but Frank Sinatra has connections to the mob, so it's more than possible that Frank what Sinatra if, is connected to him. What if Joe DiMaggio yeah. had the mob take out Marilyn because he was jealous of this relationship with Bobby or yeah. JFK or both, and it wasn't enough? And so then he started to pick the other ones off, too. I mean, I like where you're going. What if the Kennedys are the ones who took her out and he knows it? So he took them out because they took retribution. They took away Marilyn. And that way he could never have her back. I like the idea that Joe DiMaggio is the is the (laughs) the the real kind of he's got a bigger role in this than anybody thinks. That's yeah. Well, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that if yeah. we know that he was so tight with Frank Sinatra that if he snapped his fingers, Frank Sinatra would bring the mob. Yeah. I'm just saying. That feels like, again, it. Uh, think about it. I mean, I know that the second we're done this, not only I'm, I'm going to push aside my Groucho Marx research mm-hmm. to quickly just Google Joe DiMaggio and the mob and see if he's related to anybody and see what happens and or did Joe DiMaggio murder Marilyn because if he couldn't have her certainly the president can't I just think there's there's you know and again this is why this is one of the ones that that confounds because like I said we'll we'll never know I'm sure what the truth is uh and there's just so many twists and turns it's very compelling yeah very compelling. especially the amount of times we've brought up joe dimaggio i like it a lot i like I do where too. it's going me too 
Me too. You know what, Christy Oxborough, you did great work. This was really this was really well put together. Oh. This got my blood pumping. You know what I mean? Like it got my little theory brain going, which I'm very excited about. I like it a and lot. What I like is that what the people don't know is that this is going to be my obsession for like probably three days, I would expect. Don't you think that's probably accurate? And for three yeah. days, I will text Christy constant, constant <laughs> things I find, <laughs> other theories I've thought of, like for about three days. And then I'll, I just, and then I tire of it and move on. Yes. But look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I do. I do. It's one thing that Thank I love, uh, especially because it, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens every once in a while. But the, the true joke is the next day I rewatch what we've recorded and then I make the promos and, and, and then I move on. And so I have moved on to something else and I'm uh, already like knee deep in another case and I'll get a text that's about somebody else. And I'm like, oh, what was that again? Because I'm elderly and can't really remember what happened just days ago but don't think that i haven't off to the side already googled joe dimaggio kill marilyn monroe <laughs> <laughs> i love the grammar of it too. I, I, well i could only do so much while also paying attention but i like that the first hit joe dimaggio knew who killed marilyn monroe knew biography details about their romance but how much do we trust country living magazine I don't know that they're doing the investigative journalism that we want necessarily, but never say never. Never say never. Yeah. I just, again, there's going to be something in there and uh, there's got to be something. Well, listen, I can't wait to discuss this further. Thank you so much for your work. This was just fabulous. Uh, you are far too kind. What, nope. what fun to go back to old Hollywood yeah, because I know a lot of the ones we do are, you know, just very, we don't specifically choose a time. We just specifically choose the people that we uh, want to know about. But to go back to like, I say go back to the 50s and 60s as though I ever actually was there. I was not, dear people. Uh, I wasn't even a thought or a whisper at the time. But it's nice because there's that romanticizing classic Hollywood and all of that and who doesn't think about like Frank Sinatra in like an, oh, he was like so huge. And then it's like, he was scum. He was a terrible person. And he like, he just, he keeps coming up. I like that we also do certain cases and suddenly it's like, this person was in that case. I know. I love that kind of thing because then it's like, you remember our good friend and they, I like being able to reference back other episodes. So that's been, it's, it's been a real, it's been a real treat. I'll say that. Yeah. And you know, I think it's funny too, because we, we, a lot of the cases we've covered, you're right, have been more modern for lack of a better term, the yeah. Brittany Murphys, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, even the, the non-celebrities like, you know, the famous Jean-Benet Ramsey's Madeline McCann's and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. It does feel, it does feel, uh, it is, it is always fun to go back to old Hollywood. As fun as, you know, death can be. <laughs> death is only as fun as you make it. <laughs> you, now you're just talking in t-shirt quotes and I can't keep up, okay? I cannot keep up. 
Thank you so much for listening and or watching this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. We so appreciate all of you. If you haven't already, please give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives. You can also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. Also, the merch store, my baby, my baby child, truecrewmerch.com, the only place to get our merch. Don't go anywhere else. And for all other questions, anything you need to find, you're confused, you're not sure, truecrimeandcocktails.com has all the answers for you. Now, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? Because it's a special one. It is a special one. I should have thought of something else uh, to say about it. We decided that we thought, you know what? We've done several months now of Patreon episodes and, yeah. and we've had a blast. Oh, careful. If I start using that, you're going to have to have a blast uh, on your shirt. Yep. And we've just really loved doing it. And we thought, you know what? Let's, let's have, let's give the people just a little, a little, a little sneak peek, a little taste of what life is like on Patreon. So we yeah. have taken a couple of different episodes Yep. That we have posted on uh, bonus things that we've posted on Patreon. And we're putting them together in what Lauren has beautifully titled Taste of Patreon. Yes, that's right. So we do bonus episodes over there and we thought it'd be nice. We've actually just surpassed the six month mark, believe it or not, on Patreon. So what better way to celebrate than to share a little of those episodes uh, with everyone else because we do have so much fun and uh, so we thought it might be fun for everyone to uh, yeah have a little a uh, little taste of that so enjoy Taste of Patreon next week on the show until then Christy do you want to say goodnight to the people goodnight people goodnight everybody Hi, Adam Peacock from My Neighbors Are Dead here. Each week on My Neighbors Are Dead, I talk to the tertiary characters real and imagined from your favorite horror films. But this summer, we're doing something different. We are taking you to the northern woods of Michigan, all the way up to Whitlow Lake, to bring you the original tale of the My Neighbors Are Dead summer camp massacre. We're bringing back some fan favorites of the show as we try to piece together through interviews with survivors, witnesses, and with any luck, the killer Chad himself, we're going to try to piece together exactly what the hell happened up there at Camp Willow Lake. It starts June 22nd and it runs all summer long. That's the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill 
to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.